faith. Fine. Listen, I was going to bring you up to date on the things. I've got the tea. I have the fruit cakes. I'll have the Irish whiskey cake. I have the branded peaches. I have the photo album. No uh, closing a pots. Uh, the carafes, I have the blue and the green. No shoehorn. Well, I'm going to see if I can't get one of the other stores to send them. And I'll have to get back with you on that. I uh, have the belt, have the yellow bow tie. Do not have the silver ball as of now, but I'm going to work on that too. Have the storage, uh, uh, a strong box. Have the harmonica. I don't have the great picture, but I do have the apple. Uh, don't have the Irish mugs, but I will have. The reindeer is a no. But a surprise, I do have the angel. Welcome back to Wiseman Podcast. I am Sean Glennis, your co-host, and I'm here with my co-host, Arlen Golden. How are you doing, Arlen? Hey, Sean. I'm, uh, I'm kind of sleepy, but I'm doing my best. And, you know, just hanging out with you, talking Weissman, nothing makes me feel more alive than that. So ready, ready to do it. I hear you. Although there is, <laughs> there is one thing that makes me feel more alive. And that is going to, <laughs> if you can believe it, uh, going to see Wiseman on the big screen, oh, uh, yeah. which I got to do uh this past uh a couple of weeks ago now so um fun. i i yeah i got to see uh public housing his 1997 film um and on 16 millimeter film it was an archival print um and i, I got to go with some friends some some past guests uh eric marsh Alyssa heflin was there as well um uh, and there's a couple future guests that might have been uh in company um, but, uh, we, we missed you, Arlen, of course. Oh, thanks. Well, re- real meeting of the minds, um, sounds like, I mean, how, tell me about it. I mean, how was it, man? How, how did it look? It's film. It's big. Oh man. Um, yeah. Big movie. Big picture. <laughs> uh, it was, it was, it, the, the movie's incredible, obviously. Um, but it was nice to see it in Chicago where it takes place mm-hmm. at Ida B. Wells. Um, and, uh, you know, it being like my first time seeing a Wiseman in a cinema, uh, which is something that we talked with Eric Hines about. Um, and it, it really was like a distinct pleasure, like just that venue, like seeing it in a room full of strangers. Uh, it really highlighted Wiseman's approach, uh, in such a great way. Like, um, mm-hmm. you know, there are scenes in that movie, you just watched it recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are scenes in that movie that like in typical Wiseman fashion, just like go on for long stretches, mm-hmm. uh, including a scene where, where a man is, is like getting assessed for a drug treatment program, I believe. Yeah. Um, and you, you get to hear all about like his past and his family and finances and stuff about his addiction and how it's impacted his, his self-worth. Um, and I'm just watching it in the cinema and just like, have this like just great feeling like just being like thankful that this exists you know that like mm-hmm. somebody that somebody made films like this uh in a dissimilar way from durational like slow cinema that just like that just allow people throughout american history to just like exist in front of us you know 
Hmm. Um, getting to experience that with with other people was was really great in a way that is uh, much different from just watching it, you know, on your TV or laptop by yourself, being like, "This is great." Um, yeah. yeah, and and it was also interesting to see, like in the ways that we talked with with Heinz, um, like seeing when people react or don't react, mm-hmm. especially like when they laugh or or don't feel comfortable to laugh, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like the you know. Weissman always says like I make movies you know I'm here to so I mean like seeing it in a theater and it's like intended context uh, especially for for this era too um, you know in the 90s when uh, he was playing like more festivals and theaters and it wasn't just like a, a you know a couple festivals and then on PBS right like I think there was probably a bit more of uh, intentionality or awareness around you know screening it big um that like you know could have been at play in the cinematography well i mean it made a huge difference like having seen so many of these uh 16 millimeter film uh films on like you know uh rips like digital rips where you know you can see the transcoding and stuff that that um zipra is working on you know uh uh redoing right now um it was amazing to see like how beautiful it, it it really was like especially this movie which takes place like in the summer and the sun is always like shining and there's just like this like orangeness and to it that is just like really beautiful to see on film in a way that that um you know the way you watched it was not anything nearly as as good as what i got <laughs> to experience let's <laughs> say that cling cling to my Sephora dvd um what what about the there's a moment in there and i mean we we don't talk too much but a very brief shot let's do the public housing episode (laughs) very brief shot of of this guy who's about to be arrested and then he just bolts he like runs across the street like a goes behind a bus and then he's just a ghost you know and they can't like is was there was there a reaction to that that felt like pretty pretty satisfying not really, because it kind of just happened so quickly, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. I think, I want to say either the hardest that people laughed, or at least the hardest that, like, me and people next to me laughed, were was during, like, the sex ed class. Sure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's just so much noise going on that it just becomes, like, comical it's also a very long scene but it just yeah. takes on like new levels of like absurdity <laughs> and uh it's just it's a really funny scene <laughs> right how, how was the turnout just curious oh it was good it was good yeah. um i mean it, it wasn't like sold out but like it was a monday night it was like a three and a half hour movie on yeah. monday night and there yeah. was uh a good crowd probably right. helped that that it you know is a chicago film right for sure yeah that 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 was the series right like chicago yeah film yep, or yep. something yeah yeah um yeah so uh speaking of the uh the zipra restorations um this is the first episode after our interview uh with frederick True. wiseman yeah um how do you how do you think it went uh obviously we <laughs> talked right after it but like now yeah. Yeah. now having like I... released it yeah, yeah. I mean, when we talked, I hadn't listened back to, to it, you know, right. didn't have any time uh, to reflect on it. But I mean, I think uh, it, it, listening to it, I was able to uh, appreciate so much more the humor, 
uh, he was expressing because, like, in the moment, I think there was a bit of that, like, Chris Farley element to it where you're trying to say the right things and not fuck up. And, like, some of those jokes, like, you know, maybe a little bit, like, come not not at our expense but like you know you're just you're just like oh shit did i like say something dumb or whatever but when you listen it back you're just like able to laugh it was you know um so yeah it was it was way funnier than i remembered it being like in the moment when of just like high anxiety and like looking through my notes for like something pointed to say you know like yeah yeah um i had yeah like having listened to it now it, it like the first time I listened to it. You're just kind of like, or at least I was just like, did I do as well as I think I did? And I kind of like get hung up on like the times where I do get like caught in sort of his games uh, (laughs) and be like, Oh, I should have said something else or I should have avoided this like phrase that is easy to brush off or like, or like to brush past for him. Um, But like once I got past that, um, I, I think that, uh, I'm really, well, I'm really glad that we got to do it, but I think that there's a lot of valuable stuff in there that he says, and also it is just really funny, but I yeah, hope people I'm, enjoyed it as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, for our part, you know, we made a pretty concerted effort to not ask him things he had been asked before or do our best to formulate questions in, in new ways. Um, and I think like, you know, I'm of course very great gratitude uh gracious uh i i have a lot of gratitude uh, <laughs> for him taking the time to to talk all that with us but also that he you know seemed to to really consider and engage with uh these questions we were presenting in a way that that does offer some you know new insights into you know some of his like key the key themes of his entire body of work you know like death and institutionalization and you know a lot of the stuff we talk about you know just get it straight from the horse's mouth Mm -hmm. i will say that i was i was wrong i mischaracterized him when we talked with robert green and we talked about um the uh model having the echo of um the song from titicut follies what is it uh uh, strike up the band strike up the band and i i i remembered him just sort of like brushing it off it or like saying something like, yeah, you know, I was there. I had to do it like whatever. Like I noticed it and, you know, yeah, but but I think he says something more about like, he implies that there is meaning there between those two, uh, Mm -hmm. by, by using that. Um, I just wanted to clear that up, but, uh, but also just like getting little things like that, like little, like admissions from him is is nice. Totally. Totally. Um, and speaking of that interview, he mentions, that um, when uh, he filmed Northeast High School and got pushed back uh, after the film came out, um, that the, the students of uh, Northeast uh, made shirts that said Fred Wiseman was right in support of him. And um, Arlen? <laughs> Sean. Uh, you made shirts. Yeah, we did. Th- we did the same thing as those students fifty years odd years ago. Uh, so we have shirts that say Fred Weissman was right, and in- incontrovertible fact uh, <laughs> that you can have blazed across your chest and uh, be engaged by all manner of strangers, as I have been in the weeks since starting to wear this shirt about who Fred Weissman is. 
and how you can watch his films. I, I hope Canopy's getting some new customers uh, from these conversations with strangers in line at the grocery store or wherever. Um, but you can order them. Uh, please do. Also, uh, to do so, email us at weismanpodcast at gmail.com with your uh, shirt size, uh, small through extra large, and your shipping address, and we'll work out payment by any of the wonderful uh, digital payment payment platforms, uh, and we'll send it to you, and you can wear it and uh, cherish it forever and, uh, you know, proselytize the work of uh, the greatest living filmmaker. That's right. And uh, while we're, while we're talking about our email, wisemanpodcast at gmail.com, I want to get out, get this, uh, this email section out. Um, while while uh, we're here, because we just have one brief email to read this week, you can write us them anytime. But this one comes from Emmanuel uh, with a, a fun fact about Canal Zone is the uh, title and uh, the email <clears throat> writes, so I watched Canal Zone for the first time the other day, and I noticed something kind of fun in it. At one point, 20 minutes and 45 seconds in, there's a short shot of several Panamanian workers, and one of them says to the other in Spanish, smile, they're filming you. I haven't seen anyone talk about this, and I find it such a fun little moment in Wiseman's filmography, a rare moment of direct address of the camera. I wonder if Wiseman knew what the worker was saying, and he just left it in as a fun gag for anyone who'd understand it, or if it was just left by mistake. Either way, it was the moment in the film that made me realize it would be a special one. Oh, I mean, that's uh, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, it's not something I, I picked up on, but like that that is very interesting, and I get I I would assume it just you know Weisman didn't employ a translator and didn't speak Spanish, so you know didn't know what they were saying. Um, but uh, I'll also note this uh, email came from someone who previously ordered a shirt. Uh, <laughs> so you can be very cool and uh, notice things that we were not able to notice probably by uh, virtue of wearing this shirt. Well, I just want to say I did notice that I just didn't feel like... <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is funny that it's the kind of thing that you could imagine Wiseman put like leaving in there on purpose yeah as much as you could like that he didn't know what they were saying yeah 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 i mean you know we got we get a whole stretch of untranslated spanish and in, in the uh television scene uh there so you know uh there were there were thing things other than you know literal meaning i guess at, at play and of interest um, but maybe if you can indulge me to draw us into today's topic, I do have another uh, working excerpt. The return of studs. From studs who has a chapter on department store salesmen. Oh, wow. <laughs> which is mostly about this guy's upbringing and like uh, uh, just kind of his outlook on life and not so much about his work at the department store. Um, but you know, I'll just read a, a brief excerpt here that, that gets into some of what we'll be discussing. Uh, he says to studs, you notice the American flag on my lapel, which I wore every day for a year. Now I got four stickers all over my car. I think America is the greatest country in the history of the world. One of the reasons free enterprise, you can go to your heart's content in life. You can set your goals anywhere you want to set them up in America. This is all part of the American spirit to compete, to be better, to be number one, to go as far as you can. 
If the next man can't go that far, don't stop and wait for him. Life will pass you up. There are times when I shoot my mouth off and times when I shouldn't. I don't want to create hard feelings about me, especially at the store. I was careful what I'd say and who I'd say it to. The length of my hair, I kept it clean. I kept it combed. It didn't fall in my eyes, but it was covering my ears a bit. I was classified right away as a radical. Management didn't come right out and attack me, but I couldn't help feel something behind closed doors was going on about it. And I was wearing a conservative suit, and I had the flag on my lapel, but I was still heckled about my hair. I didn't wear my hair to be a leftist, I'm a right-winger, but I wanted to see what it was like. I enjoyed it for a while, but last Friday, I got a haircut. Now it's straight where I had it most of my life. I like it better. At the store, I felt a warmer feeling. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and then, I mean, you know, so we could go into it, but I guess one scene we could talk about is there is a salon within Neiman Marcus. Oh, yeah. Uh, they're kind of like all these weird ancillary aspects of the store that is not just like, you know, buying clothes and jewelry and stuff. There's like the, the Zodiac Room, like restaurant, and there's this salon, and like, you know, they try and make this like you spend your whole day there right spending money um and buying stuff so like the i guess as it relates to that passage you know the way in which haircuts uh, like do or don't affirm the ideology being professed by the store you know uh are are uh of import you know in terms of projecting a certain kind of image a certain kind of ideology and like um uh, very enmeshed in the commerce of the whole affair is, is, you know, like, you know, being, we could talk about this as a sequel to model, but like, you know, image is, uh, everywhere in this film. Well, what I got from that is that <clears throat> you'll also just feel better <laughs> if you embrace the ideology. <laughs> I guess. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the store Wiseman's 1983 film is a film, as, as you've kind of talked about, explores the ins and outs of operations at the prestigious department store Neiman Marcus, Dallas, Texas. Aired in mid-December of 1983. Um, and as we talked with uh, our guest uh, today, uh, Miriam Vale, uh, this is a Christmas movie. It's a mm. sneaky Christmas movie. <laughs> uh, shot during the, the, the previous Christmas rush um, in 82. Um, and this is obviously the first documentary in color for Wiseman. Huge. Um, huge. Um, and this is the first film following uh, Wiseman's MacArthur Grant, the Genius Award, um, which he received in 82 at the age of 52. Um, as is talked about in one of the New York Times reviews, um, Wiseman said that the, the grant came at, at this critical time, um, right when his five-year... WNET contract ran out and, and the channel was uh, financially unable to renew it. Um, and also his proposal for, so he would like send proposals to the cor- Corporation of Public Broadcasting for, for each of his films. And the one for the store was rejected. Um, and I believe that they, they started, he talked somewhere about how like they started contracting out the funding approval process um, so his existing relationship just kind of like wasn't honored. And, and during the process, uh, they were curious as to like why he chose Neiman Marcus over like Macy's or Gimbel's. That was right. like sort of their big hang up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 
And uh, but CPB eventually gave him some funds after filming was done, but it, it took a lot of prodding, and I think it it caused a lot of frustration for Wiseman, and uh, yeah, uh, that endured. Yeah, he it it sounded like he kind of had one sort of like angel supporter uh, who who kind of pushed the thing through for him. Um, but he like, I think he had to, you know, use the entirety of that, that grant and, uh, take out a loan where he put up his whole body of work as collateral against it. Um, so like, you know, this was a film that needed to be successful, I guess, in a way that, that previous films hadn't, which is something, you know, I, I wasn't really considering, but it's really interesting, you know, as we'll get into with the reviews that there was this sort of mixed reception to it because I, I, you know, maybe it's easier in hindsight, but, you know, I have a sense that Weissman must've thought this was a slam dunk, right? Like he, he's not showing this like depressing, uh, sort of like, uh, institutional, uh, black and white, like, um, Grim just, reality. Yeah, right. Exactly. That he's, he's doing something more accessible, more, more commercial that, that might have a broader appeal, uh, you know, less overtly like, um, political i mean it's certainly very political but but uh you have to to read between the lines for it um but you know i mean i i assume it all worked out because he went on to make a bunch more movies yeah yeah actually um uh, when i was just like kind of reading around about public housing after i watched it he said that he in in one interview that he has at that time um a deal with his bank where he would just like routinely put up his films hmm. um as collateral so uh yeah i guess this was the start of that um, interesting uh the store did cost $235,000 to make just in case you're curious about as much as uh ridley scott's uh budget for <laughs> shooting <a> commercial <laughs> department story commercial yeah um but yeah wiseman talks in interviews about stuff like um there's no place like like uh public broadcasting is like terrible now and there's like no place for like artistry mm. and he's pretty disparaging about the the situation yeah he did he did sound uh pretty like beat up and pissed off about it i mean enough to air these grievances publicly in print right like <laughs> right, you know, right. Like, in big and, and, and maybe you know bite the hand that feeds him a little bit um but maybe he, he felt like you know that ship had sailed and there was there was nothing to lose in doing so yeah so um so i kind of wanted to to talk about this first of like why did he choose neiman marcus like he is mm-hmm. asked but uh, you know we can also talk about it um, and when he, when he's asked from, from interviewers, why he chose this store, uh, he, he just says like, he wanted a big department store and wanted to see like, they had to be like middle-class and upper middle-class or upper-class mm-hmm. people, um, that you didn't find in the institutions that he had already previously, uh, documented. And he was interested in their values and tastes, preferences, attitudes, and how all of those values profit a large corporation. Yeah. Um, and of course he's, he's all, he's pretty cagey about like, you know, he says the usual, uh, it was a store that was very good at what it does, whatever that means <laughs> yeah. to him subtextually, <laughs> but overall, you know, venturing into the, like a richer class of people to find connections between, 
between classes and within this class. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think very clearly this film carries on themes that that Weissman was exploring in the previous film model, you know, of of ideology and image production and uh, hegemony. Um, uh, he doesn't come out and say any of that explicitly, but it's all there. But, um, you know, there seemed to be among the credits at the time, a disappointment or like, a, what's the point about not shooting poor people, you know, not, ex- oh, yeah. not exploring, you know, uh, the lower rungs of society in order to illuminate, you know, institutional issues and, and problems. And, you know, he very pointedly says like, don't, do you kind of think there's some relationship between, you know, the upper class and the middle class and the lower class? Like he's like the reviewers didn't seem to be really displaying this class consciousness. That's a cornerstone of Weissman's work. But like, uh, you know, we do think it, it is interesting to think about this, you know, uh, I guess with model two being like the first of the films to really look at, at the upper class, uh, you yeah. know, as we'll go on to do in like Aspen and stuff. Um, but like, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the stereotype of Weissman as the institutional filmmaker is already starting to, to crumble. And I think that's part of why the reception around this film was maybe, you know, so mixed because like people are like, this isn't that thing you do that we like, you know, this is some other kind of thing. But you know, I like people still say that about Wiseman, like he only makes movies about poor people. Like I think Mm -hmm. that there's an attitude that, from people that maybe don't want to invest, like want to have like a take on Wiseman, but don't really want to invest into like all of his work and how and how it works together, Um, which is unfortunate and hard to take serious. But um, but it is something like that starts with this that you know think about he went from Aspen to Belfast. I mean, not like film to film, but like uh, in the same decade, or he went from like Jackson Heights to Monrovia to Boston, like Mm -hmm. these, and, and even within, well, not within Monrovia, um, but within Boston, I guess, more specifically, like looking at different um, populations within one place, but together, like creating this constellation of portraits that reveal things together as much as they do, you know, in solitude. Yeah, it really starts yeah. here. Yeah, I mean it's it's critical. It's a critical piece of like not only understanding the work, but I think you know enjoying the work on just kind of like a, a cinephilic level, right? Is like uh, it, it's so much richer uh, knowing what comes before and after, and and the ways they're all um, in dialogue with each other. But like, yeah, just to say. I mean, it's just such a weird thing to consider now, too. Like, what's the point of documenting rich people? You know, like the people who have all the power in society in a capitalist society. Like, how, uh, if if you if your whole interest is like institutional pro- power and how that's created an exercise, like who who else are you gonna look at? Right. 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 Yeah, and he he talks also about like. Um, not not making a movie for the unwashed masses in some of these, right? Like, mm. um, he has he has a good line somewhere about like, uh, oh, he said he he talks about how uh, this was in the Washington Post article. Oh, that was a good one, yeah. By Tom Shales, um, yeah. Although Tom 
Shales starts out by saying that he looks like Yoda, which is becoming <laughs> somewhat common, like Body, Elvish yeah. or yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, well, but, he uh, he does say it right before he calls him like a singular master, but like yeah. you know. <laughs> um, but Wiseman talks about how he makes films assuming that the audience is as smart as he is or as dumb as yeah. he is right. and he tries to, he tries to he tries to meet his own standards and assumes that his standards aren't that unique and if he were to dilute his films for these unwashed masses he would just be patronizing mm-hmm. which is like it, yes uh, it, of course like and that's really hard for a lot of people to understand that like yeah. I, don't, I don't know like across, not just for Wiseman but just like in general about art um is just like what well shouldn't this be as easy to understand as possible for everyone yeah he has he has such a way of putting these things that make it so like obvious and self-evident you know that i think is probably akin to to his filmmaking too is like you know he, he presents things you know like we talk about uh, a lot of critics saying like he's not showing us anything new he's showing us things we know but in such a way that we understand them in in a way that that maybe we didn't before um or or uh increases our understanding of what we already knew in interesting ways but like like a statement like that is just like oh yeah duh <laughs> like you know obviously yeah yeah um, um there there was also like around this time in the in the critical body of work seem to be some assertions that Weissman had gone soft in picking his recent uh, subjects. And that was something he really pushed back against in this Washington Post uh, interview, this idea that like, you know, what kind of what we were just talking about of, you know, under you understand the class divisions and the issues of the, the, you know, poorer classes um through looking at you know the wealthy and the you know it he says it's harder to get them in the kinds of institutions he's been shooting just by virtue and i mean you know we can think of maybe other people we've seen in previous films like the governor of the canal zone or the head of monfort plant or something who occupy this uh upper um economic Mm -hmm. class but like uh do exist within these institutions but like you know the people who shop at Neiman Marcus and are buying like $50,000 sable coats, you know, they probably never have reason to go to Montfort plant. They never (laughs) have have reason to, to uh, go to canal zone, you know, like this is, this is a whole different animal altogether. That also reminds me of a great line in, in, in one of, um, one of these reviews, I can't remember which one, but he says, uh, he says that in Neiman Marcus, he gets to see where, the people in his other film shop yeah like yeah. the institutional actors like the doctors right. and lawyers and stuff like where those people shop which is a funny funny little line yeah i mean it's also too you know it's, we'll talk later about like the the context in terms of like the time this was filmed but i mean the the choice of dallas um at this time soap opera dallas it's you know exactly that kind of milieu right like Mm -hmm. these are probably the where those people uh in the soap opera shop right like all the oil tycoons and and all that kind of thing you know when there's this crazy scene in the store where like 
uh, it's like a meeting of salespeople, and the head guy is like, And I would like you to call you personally, department manager, if that customer, if you know that customer has not been in. I'd like you to call that customer personally and invite them into the store. Okay? For you aggressive department managers that are having more difficult than some, if you want to make it the top four, the top five, you can be as aggressive as you'd like to be. But I'd like you to personally call your top three customers and invite them into the store by department. Okay? Well, we have 10, 15, 12, whatever it is, 12 selling managers, three. That's 36 major customers we should have come into the store if they accept your invitation. Imagine knowing who the fuck those people are to begin oh, with, yeah. right? Like, and what their phone numbers are. Like, this is just like such a tier of retail that is beyond anything I've experienced or, or knew existed. But like, um, you know, there are these personal relationships at play and like a, a level of import that the staff is impressing upon their clientele, uh, probably partially because, you know, they're very rich and they have high social standings. Um, uh, but also it's something they're creating for them. It's part of the experience of shopping at Neiman Marcus, right. Is, is being like, like having this presumption of like importance put upon you by the people who work there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, so we get like we get a, a scattering um, of opinions, uh, reactions to this movie through throughout the the reviews, which is nice. Um, <clears throat> I like in in Variety, David Stratton, he's like just totally bored by the movie, doesn't understand it, says it's like slow and overlong, and one of his lesser works. Um, wishes it would have just centered on Stanley Marcus because he's like <laughs> an actual guy with flair or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, it, this is Variety we're talking about here. So it's like, you know, West Coast trade publication, far removed from, uh, you know, I guess independent documentary. But like, um, like and and that, that shows in the, the language uh, David uses, uh, David Stratton uses, he calls it mainly of academic interest, uh, <laughs> right? Which is like, it's so funny for this to be the film that people are having issues with and that because it it is cut so fast like it moves so quickly um you know like you think about a scene uh like the the final trial in juvenile court that like lasts a half an hour you know Mm -hmm. or more like we don't get anything that even approaches that here you know we talk about later the chicken scene being the longest that was like what like less than 10 minutes still probably you know so like it's really zippy and punchy and like vibrant because of the color and all the products on display and like there there are even these narrative through lines we get um that we don't always get with Weissman of like you know the the sable customer will return to him a couple times throughout the film as he's like deciding which coat to buy or like the woman in the changing room we talk about with miriam who has these like two uh salespeople like I know, this one she wants because you're going to be one of a kind this is terribly heavy i know but i'm the only one that's got hips big enough to carry it that's she wants it that's what but she I wants i don't like this thing so just a skirt. just a skirt but look it looks great she, oh, what are you going to put on top? Nothing. 
going to be topless. No, no she, we would find It's too something. special not to have something absolutely marvelous on top. Well, well Mrs. Glatter, since you did so well on this, it's beautiful. Why don't you try? Why don't you try the other top on the other? It's a print, much prettier blouse. I want a solid color because I won't wear a print in a print or a stripe, and a stripe thing looks terrible. She wants a solid color. We can we can find her a pretty Why don't gold. We have some a pretty gold blouse in silk or a blue or a, you know. Why don't we have some of the fabric and we will design the blouse. Make a marvelous dress and a, a big sash with marvelous green ribbon. With the low neck and the three-quarter mm -hmm. like wouldn't, wouldn't it be too much? No. no. It will not be too much? It's much too important to skirt not to have the right top. Okay, I'll ask him to but make a solid color uh, blouse. But don't you think it's just gorgeous? It's smashing. Um, you know, the Weissman establishes them, goes on to something else, and then like comes back, you know, a, a couple times to see, you know, where they're at, um, which is really like fun and, and just rewarding and like just like a, as a film watcher. Um, but it also, I think, like demonstrates or expresses like a this. Uh, I've talked, I've invoked Sisyphus before but like just like you know right this et eternal quality like it never ends for either party it never ends for the the customer who's always buying and it never ends for the floor people who are always selling you know yeah. this is it's just and there's uh, always more to sell and they're always selling the same thing you know it's always you know yeah, they're yeah. just selling the same sable coat to the same people year after year you know like like and and I think too there's I noticed this mostly with uh, one scene with a jeweler, like there's a palpability about the desperation of some of the salespeople in terms of like, you know, needing to make commission probably. Right. And like, you know, they're, they are salespeople and you know, they're, it, it's, it's a skill and some people have more finesse about it than others, but like, um, you know, that's, that's an undercurrent here, you know, going back to the the very first kind of big scene we get is is the meeting of staff where it's like there's one word to the whole reason for it all i mean sales a simple little word and that's why we have the building why we have you know if we were doctors if, if we were doctors we would have a doctor's office and the only reason for us being there would be for people to come in with something wrong with them for us to look at them and for us to cure them and that would be our purpose for being doctors. If we were undertakers, we would be there waiting for a body to come in. The body would be brought in. We'd do things to it. We'd dig a hole and we'd put them in it. If we were car mechanics, we'd wait for cars to come in and we'd fix them. And when we were finished, we'd give the car back. And that would be our purpose. But we're in Neiman Marcus for one reason and one reason only. It doesn't matter if we're Phil Miller, who's president, or, or if, or if we're, we're sweeping the floor or whatever we are, whatever capacity we have, there's really one purpose to our being at Neiman Marcus, one, one grand purpose, and that's to make sales. Because it's an institution created to make sales. You know, we're, we're not a place to come in and get out of the rain. We're not a place to come uh, visit and socialize. We are those things also. But with all of that, we only have one purpose in life. So when we do what we're here for, we're doing what we do well. If we, if we don't do that well, and if we don't encourage that, and if we don't eat and sleep that as a purpose, that, then we're defeating our purpose. If we were doctors and we were sitting there to sort of meet new friends and make uh, acquaintances and, and have a nice time, we wouldn't be very good doctors if that's all we did. We can do all of that with being good doctors if we were that, but we're not that. We're, we're salesmen. And I think that that's really... Uh, 
pointing in not only um, who they are serving, you know, as like the the wealthy elite of Dallas, but who they're specifically not serving. And it's like the people who right. go who go to the mall or the people who go to the Jewish deli and get like the blue roses on their cake or whatever, you know, it's like they, it, it's, it's exclusionary, you know, it's, 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 yeah. um, in, in a way that's like very, um, maybe they don't see it that way in explicit terms, but like in practice that that's exactly what it is. For sure. Um, I, I wanted to talk about the Newsweek one, uh, by Harry Waters, which mm-hmm. um, he kind of talked about what you were saying up top about like how this is a, a bit of a departure uh, for what viewers may have come to associate Wiseman with. Um, I like that he, he calls the film a pungent antidote to Yuletide hyperglycemia, <laughs> which is, I'm sure he, he was very proud of that. Um, but he talks about how the film works on two levels, like the first being uh, like Dallas is uh, conspicuously wealthy um, and how this establishment is just like feeding them their fantasies. Um, uh, and the other level is how Neiman Marcus, uh, as an empire functions, <clears throat> incorporating like these depersonalizing like corporate st- stratagems that, that we talk a lot about. Um, but he has this, this great line, um, Wiseman shows us a spending machine as obsessively single-minded as any gambling casino. Um, and you and I have talked about this, uh, but Wiseman's casino, uh, Wiseman's four hour casino, uh, would just be, uh, incredible. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Here's hoping, uh, someday, um, that, that Newsweek thing though did take some digs. Um, and you know, most confoundingly, uh, he said, documentary is rapidly expiring like as a form you know like which is just insane to think about it in 83 you know like i think koyanis katsi was the year before uh you know errol morris had already done Uh vernon florida and gates of heaven and like you know he was ascendant you know we got herzog and all all kinds of people. Uh, he said, "Yeah, he says Wiseman is basically the last good documentary film." It's crazy. It's crazy. I mean, it, it's just such a a time of uh, a ballooning experimentation and like an expanding yeah. of the idea of what documentaries are and can be. Right. That like you know, I think that's just repeatedly a, a disappointing thing throughout some of these reviews is is such a reduction of the possibilities sure. of what it can do. But somewhat importantly for for this type of mainstream review, um, Water mentions that that uh, Wiseman often rearranges his footage in order to manipulate it for his own uh, use. And here he he specifically is is taking him to task for like showing a bunch of workers doing what we've referred to previously as like alienated labor. And he doesn't really say why he doesn't like that. Um, yeah. Maybe he just finds it a bit too like obviously personal for like this uh, uh, observational filmmaker. I don't know, but he also commends him for showing what he calls a view of workers that contradicts Wiseman's POV. Right. Um, which, which is in, such a bizarre it, idea. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I mean, it's it, it's it's interesting that that he finds these two views of workers contradictory. Uh, but but like alienation of labor comes in both forms, right? Well, and you know, 
Weissman's point of view is the film, you know, right, and right. and the scenes that make so like it's just inherently impossible for there to be something within it that contradicts his point of view. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, maybe part of this that like you're talking about like do, uh, documentary being sort of like this uh, blooming art form. I think has people struggling to know what to do because like their, their job is to have an idea about it. Uh, or at least that that's what they think is part of the job is like having an idea, having like an informed idea about it. And when you have someone like Wiseman who doesn't give like easy opportunities to like tell you what to think, I mean, maybe I, I think we see elsewhere too, like people just kind of like struggling with what they like, even if they like the film struggling with, with struggling their way through it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, I don't know. I mean, I think part of it maybe just, you know, it's, it was less of a uh, ubiquitous form, you know, they were, they weren't as easy to watch as they are now, you know, there weren't as many of them as there are now. So, I mean, I think the thing that we have to really consider when we, we look at all of these reviews as we have is like, most of the time they're they're just reviewing hollywood narrative cinema you know and and so you know right. the the review the reviewers are conditioned in in a particular way and i think weissman's films um you know part part of the greatness of them is they're uh challenging you know a lot of those dominant uh forms of cinematic narrative you know uh, and people probably have some trouble with that you know i thought Speaking of that, the the shots of um, the ET dolls on the <laughs> shelf, you know, was maybe kind of a knowing nod to just the cinematic landscape at the time of this like ballooning of of the event blockbuster, yeah, you know, yeah. and like like uh, how um, you know the it, it, it was probably just harder, you know, especially you know uh so just like on a societal like philosophical level too with like the ascendance of reagan and like everyone cheering you know the trickle down uh plan and everything like you know it, it like i said with with dallas um coming f- and i think also uh that robin leach show uh lifestyles of the rich and famous mm-hmm. was around this time too there was such a celebration of excess you know like excess was uh the signifier that america you know was truly a successful society right as right. as evidenced in you know products and uh spectacle uh like et and and others uh, you know like indiana jones was around then too yeah i think that's a really smart observation about like the et thing um and putting himself sort of like in the labs landscape of of cinema um in opposition i think someone noted too like that was the biggest selling toy of that holiday season so much so that like neiman marcus like we were talking about they were trying to create this sort of elite upper class (laughs) vibe like they 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 couldn't justify not stocking it just because everyone wanted it that much um chicago readers ted shen calls it consumer's pleasure <laughs> has rarely been so glorified or tedious and, uh, yeah well that we should note this was not a contemporaneous review in the reader. oh that's right that's right um, this was in like 2008 2000... 2003 yeah. something like that but like which is crazy it's very shut yeah right 
it's very shocking to to hear that from a modern reviewer he says it it's like most its purpose was mostly as a time capsule you know which like it certainly has that element to it but um yeah like like we talk about a bit later with miriam some of these critics had this idea that it's a celebration or glorification of the store and what it does and how it operates uh and and ted shen seemed to to be taking that stance that like uh the pursuit of consumers pleasures were like something that that weissman (laughs) was promoting and like advocating for um christian science monitors arthur unger uh, ha- it's a brief review, but laudatory. He calls it a masterwork even. And that Wiseman, like Stanley Marcus has done it his way. Um, and he says that the, the film will be of sociological importance for years to come. Um, we talk uh, about another Christian science monitor <clears throat> review by Hillary DeVries, DeVries, uh, with Miriam. Um, but, uh, it, it, it's almost more of like a profile, uh, then review at times. Um, but there's a really good nugget that I wanted to mention that, that Wiseman has that I hadn't heard before. Um, he says, uh, I suppose one gets a better reflection of society as a whole through the institutions, not the individual society is like the abominable snowman. You never catch sight of it, but he leaves his tracks in institutions. Um, it, it besides that just being like you know whimsical um i like this quote because it's sort of like him admitting that he he isn't able to capture anything in his final form like he's not offering you like everything you everything you could ever know about neiman marcus like that's not the pretense of his films like but all of them are like adding up to 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 one look at society and 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 that look can never be complete um but each film that he makes gives gives you a better understanding mm mm-hmm. mhm yeah um that that was a pretty cute metaphor uh weissman is cryptozoologist (laughs) (laughs) she she also brings up the idea of community um you know which has been a big part of his work obviously um and and he says that all of his films deal with communities uh and how they work and play and express their ideologies as a group Mm -hmm. um and obviously in the store uh well I i think he says that the workers are involved in group mystique Mm, um which has its own ideology but he he admits to her that one of his primary preoccupations is is how that ideology is used for social social control um which i feel feel like is probably something he wouldn't say today Mm. well yeah i mean that's something he talked about being like his chief concern in primate right like how these Mm -hmm. this research could be used for social control and it's you know as we spoke with him about an institutionalization it's like just one of the central themes of his work um i think the thing that i really took away from this uh christian science monitor piece was just that um you know as we say with miriam she gets it but like uh talking about this misconception of what the film is doing and what it's advocating for um, but that Weissman intentionally preserves contradictions, you know, because that's what reality is, right? It isn't any one thing, um, but it, it is inherently contradictory, and there are always these paradoxes. And uh, if you're being a true documentarian, you have to wrestle with that. You know, you can't um, just make your point of view uh, excise um 
you know, what you see to, to fit it. I mean, you know, again, like Weissman always says, his films are simply a report of what he saw and his, the films represent, you know, his experience and point of view of that. So he's not coming in with preconceptions or uh, an agenda of, you know, what he wants to tackle, but, um, you know, uh, engaging with the experience of, of shooting and then in the editing uh, to to cobble together something that f- I guess feels right based on what he experienced. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think we also talked a little bit about Karen Rosenberg's uh, The Nation uh, review with Miriam, but, um, but she has a good uh, point about like how the uh the customers are are too willing to accept what they know is a sales pitch mm. um which i think is an interesting part of the performance happening in the store that i hadn't really thought about like during research i was i, I was thinking more about the performance of the salespeople and the pr- performance of neiman marcus yeah. as like a place that is is uh creating this this perfunctory space this like dream reality thing yeah um but there is a performance within the customer as well. Um, and she takes up a couple points that are, are dumb at the movie um, and basically wishes it was Radio Shack. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll let that one sit. But the, the, <laughs> the, the customer uh, salesperson thing is like, you know, there is this uh, confusion where they're hard to differentiate. And at certain points, the salespeople become the customers there's the scene uh in in the the like photo portrait uh studio where the the english saleswoman we saw dealing uh, with the woman in the changing room is uh directing the the photographer to like present her in a certain light but it it looks so business i don't want like a business you want to sell something feminine non-career lady i want to look soft I stay home all day. I play cards. Um, so I mean, like in a very literal sense, there's this uh, confluence of of the salespeople and the customers. Isn't it always weird when you're like in the grocery store and like <laughs> like self checkout, and then like one of the workers comes to check out? And you're like, <laughs> it's like you're breaking reality. <laughs> or, or where I, when I'm at the grocery store and someone asks me where something is, oh, and sure. like I have to, I, I guess I work here now. Yeah, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i mean there's uh i guess a few things this is bringing up for me one is another connection to model which we'll talk about more later but like there are these floor models too that are present throughout the film um kind of reminding me of like an in phantom thread um but like mm-hmm. you know that are just walking the floors in like the newest fashions you know and just like uh the they're used basically as living mannequins, you know, the, the salespeople are like... And then there's another one that is divine, Connie. It's a sleeve that's about this long, and it's totally backless. Had this neckline, you know, kind of crossed like this, but just totally no back. And of course it can come in any of the colors. Or they're, they're in the restaurant, like, you know, imagine you're sitting, sitting having a meal, and like, uh, some lady comes up to you, like... Very sheer silk with the Lurex thread throughout, elasticized at the waist. This is from the RSVP shop, fourth floor. Like, it's just so bizarre, but, like, you know, like you can imagine 
you know, some of the, these, these seem to be women in their, you know, forties or fifties maybe, but like you can imagine some of the models at Zoli, you know, maybe this is what lies in store for them oh, sure. uh, down the line. That that reminds me too, Barry Keith Grant talks about how some of the shots, <clears throat> you don't know who's a mannequin and who's, who's not mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like at first. And then somebody moves, uh, which is similar to what we talked about in that great party scene in model where like, um, you know, there are obviously the models, the live models against the table or against right, the wall, right. but then there are like actual mon- mannequins in the crowd that he's shooting as if they're, you know, people. Um, yeah. Which it, it's like, which is not something that you would like. It, it seems like that's what they're going for, right? Like a D humanization kind of like it you know how what else can you read from that but like why why would that be a good thing to do i don't know like i guess it, it's just kind of like a hip like chic sort of uh depersonalized like I don't know. you know kind of uh, especially in this era right like of ubiquitous consumption and and rising class inequality of like um you know to dehumanize is to uh, remove feeling, you know, if you can just embrace your like consumerism and wear the pretty things and not worry about the other stuff, you know, like that, that is inherently dehumanization. And uh, maybe it, it, it's just another part of the ideology operating there. You know, I'm just riffing, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh i don't know but um <laughs> one last one last review is by is in the publication america by jack donahue which uh i believe he wrote earlier about maybe like um <clears throat> maneuver but we, we couldn't mm. track it down um but uh <clears throat> he opens by by kind of like talking about his approach uh like and he uses the term subversive intent mm-hmm. um moralist and that he yeah, and he edits with insight and conscience, which uh, I really like. And and he says um, he has this great line. Uh, so it happens that the person's places and snatches of conversation recorded by his unerring cameraman John Davy subtly disturb complacency. They prompt people to take a critical look at the world around them. Um, and we've talked about this prompting on earlier episodes, and we'll again maybe later on this episode. But that's sort of that's the key, mm-hmm. like is is like there's always like a prompting going on but yeah he like he 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 was very high on this film yeah he called it fabulous um but yeah it is interesting you know because this film had so many reviews that we were able to find just how much every reviewer seems to be compelled to spend the first couple paragraphs like explaining who Weissman is and what he's done. Dude, people and like, still do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, like yeah. you know, like, I, I can't imagine, really, I mean, like, imagine for crimes of the future, you know, everyone's like, David Cronenberg, you know, loves, like, weird flesh vaginas and, like, you know, like, yeah. kind of stuff. Like, like it's well, it every also, review. I don't know. It would also be like, I mean, it's the same with, like, interviews. And I, I can't remember if I asked him this or if it, or if I did if it made the cut for my, the first time I talked to him, but like why every interview comes down to process mm-hmm. for him. And it's like, yeah, if like every interview of like David Cronenberg for crimes of the future is like, and so you shot the film 
in order or no? No? Okay. And then you, how did you talk about the editing? You know, like, how did you put, how did you know what to put first? You know, like just that type of stuff. Um, and it's like, okay, so how many camera, how many lights did you use? Right. You know, yeah, that yeah. stuff just isn't talked about. Yeah. Um, and, but you know, Wiseman's so unusual and that that's like what people want to talk about, I guess. And I guess it, it speaks to, at least at, at the time, just their like relative scarcity, right? Like maybe the readers just literally weren't familiar because you know that the, the assumption seems to be readers aren't familiar and hadn't seen any of his previous work <laughs> and they have to do that yeah. work for them and setting that up um just because you know you you catch it on pbs or you don't and then it's gone i will say one of the nice things um about these reviews is that several of them mention seraphita's diary true and yeah. a couple of them mention like in in implication of quality or not like that they had seen like sinai field mission yeah um and maneuver so that was cool just to like even the films that we didn't always get a lot of reviews about that people like were still like seeing them somehow yeah yeah that's a good point i mean you know these are professional critics so like you know they probably caught some at festivals or just on on the beat um but bringing up those uh films in particular you know i think Weissman had been on a stretch of films that were a bit more expansive in the institutional approach. And I guess I'm speaking mostly about setting and place um, in terms of like where the institution exists and operates. Um, but here we're, we're back in the one building in a way we haven't been uh, in a while. Uh, maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe since meet uh, which, you know, had its outdoor scenes as well, but you know, we, we escape, you know, we come in from the outside um, to start the film and we have an escape at the end at like this mm. large hotel banquet hall or whatever. Um, but otherwise, you know, this is this is a return to the enclosed kind of amorphous uh, labyrinthine indoor space. The cloister. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. And <clears throat> um, I, I think you mentioned it later, but the first word spoken here is uh, somebody shopping saying... Well, it's too orange. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is just a such a great little touch for your first like canonical color work. Um and, and I believe I believe the first words we hear in racetrack are uh why is everything black and white again? It's <laughs> so good. Like it's truly yeah. a genius, you yeah, know, to just yeah. be able to find these yeah. These words. Um No, but anyway, yeah. um I think just like, you know, with model, he, he, he's he announces this as like a, a very self-aware work, like we've talked about. Um, and, and Grant talks about how he uses that self-reflex self-reflexivity with the store in particular to call attention to, um, our passivity of retail shopping, the stuff that, that we've just like, you know, come to know, uh, mm -hmm. and, and probably, um, become passive to ourselves mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um yeah let, let's talk about just you know we've gone through reviews just some of our old friends and standbys here um but barry keith grant talks about um the the interview scene that we we discuss at miriam with miriam at length about um but one thing we didn't touch on that i wanted to bring up is is uh we've talked about this confluence of salesperson and uh, customer um, but there's also this confluence of salesperson and product and the way that uh, 
the salespeople are commodifying themselves and uh had to have in this instance uh, sabrina is is the woman's name she has to like advertise herself make herself a product mm-hmm. uh in in a term that you know i think we take for granted now uh this whole concept of like a personal brand right but like this really predates this like kind of internet idea of of your own personal brand um but like you know here it is uh in 1982 and like really just showcasing that it it, you know it's nothing's different from how it operates now you know and and the the core of it um but it's just really this this thing that that capitalism requires of uh people to do is is self-commodification going back to like the dehumanization depersonalization idea but like like um the way that these ideologies demand you to commodify yourself yeah she has a great line in there she says um neiman marcus has a principle that i've always believed in and that is is that a sale is not a good sale for this company unless it is a good buy for the customer and i appreciate that and it's funny because it contradicts the opening line about like sales being the only thing (laughs) right like it's not contingent on like a happy customer right um so it is like this like branding of like what they want you to hear but then once you're once you're in you know like they're like okay good we want you to have that in in your bag for like you know some sort of like appeal in order to actually make a sale right like that's not the truth but like you put that on in order to actually make a sale in order for the customer to think that they're making a good purchase right yeah it's 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 exactly that it's like the the face uh in front of you know what's really going on um but like you know and it it, it's a weird tightrope for her to be walking because it's like you know her livelihood depends on this right like how much money she's going to make so it's like do i do the sort of outward customer facing ideological approach or do i do this you know the real kind of back room what we speak to each other about mm-hmm. you know like how how am i supposed to present myself here and it, it's it's really interesting to see her try and navigate that while also just you know plainly uh, advocating for for herself yeah, and we we talked about that scene in terms of like the social control of of employees, um, and which I, I think I think is is common for for to find in a Wiseman film. Like he's he's always finding like employees of or institutional actors. But um, I, I think what's interesting is the social control of the customer that we see in here, because mm-hmm. you know unlike unlike a high schooler uh you know they can just leave whenever they want unlike um somebody in basic training they can Mm -hmm. just leave um and i i what's fascinating about it is um well there's that we haven't talked about or no i think you did mention really scott but uh yeah the the (laughs) salary but but they're talking about like um tv and like this built-in like susceptibility this uh he he says something directly about like how vulnerable viewers are and they can basically do whatever they want mm-hmm. um and grant ties that into the escalators but um a lot of what they're doing is like using the susceptibility or like vulnerability of customers throughout the store to to put in place 
this taste hierarchy. Like that, that seemed to be like one of the big things to me that was like used over and over again. Um, like, you know, the, the sable salesman uh, was a big one. Like he says like. Just to give you an idea of the selection and style, we've come back to a little bit more of the shawl collar. Mm -hmm. You see the same sable. And uh, of course, all skin's very little. So you see mm -hmm. a little, little difference there. Uh, still got the silver But it's still, on. The, this is all wild again. <clears throat> Um, 37.5, but you see those skins from the back? I, it's undoubtedly the thickest, most luxuriant sable I've ever seen. And the silver hair is just uh, incredible. Now, on your brown shades, that's not to say that that sable is inferior to mm -hmm. this. It's just simply that this is wild and you've got the capability of, of getting that ranched, you see. So it really is... Uh, just a matter of what do I like the shade or do I like more of the silver? And of course, there's a cost difference. Uh, this being forty-five thousand for just the jacket, you see. But HB, you know, I'm gonna show you the best, and that I've not seen anything ever to equal that. And it's like clearly like setting in place like this this clear like taste hierarchy while trying not to distance the customer from like the cheaper option you yeah, know yeah. um and then wiseman cuts like right after he says like there's, there's just no limitation on something like this that's just a true work of art <laughs> yeah, right. uh, and uh and we see stuff like um you know the makeup artist like sign up for the makeup artist mm -hmm. um uh the 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 salesman with the couple that are buying like the ring or the gem or whatever is a, is a really great scene. You've yeah. mentioned it a couple of times, but um, that's one where she's like directly relying on the salesman to set the taste hierarchy, like to tell her like, mm. or they're like, and this is a good one, right? Or, or yeah. these are good stones, right? Yeah. Um, and Grant talks like, Grant writes very well about that scene in terms of like mirrors being this like, um yeah the way that shot is so just arresting yeah yeah it is so it's just like this shot of uh on the salesman and on the salesman's desk is a small round mirror and in that mirror you get the two people the two customers uh man and wife uh you get their face and i believe grant talks about it as like this like split in consciousness like that advertising does and um, and that like this shot of them in the mirror is sort of like this projection of what the salesman is trying to get at. Yeah. Um, it, it is a striking, really striking shot. Yeah. And uh, just something you said, you know, yes, these these customers are able to exit the store and, you know, leave the institution. But like also like, do they, you know, it's like the store uh, is about Neiman Marcus, but I think it's also just about like consumerism and consumer culture generally. Um, and it, there is no escape from that, right? Like there's right. like, that's something that's always happening and always being, uh, performed, you know, by various actors, you know, and, and this idea about TV too, like it's, it's kind of surprising that Cronenberg is coming up so much, but I mean, like, you know, thinking about like Videodrome and this, like, came out the same year, right? Yeah. Like this McLuhanist idea that, that TV was really shaping consciousness, you know, in a way that, uh, was like kind of revolutionary and scary that, that people were wrestling with. But like, here we are, you know, we, we, this is the behind the scenes actors of like, uh, 
like cultural ideology building, right? They're like, we have this tool. How can we use it to make people buy stuff at our store? And right? we saw like, in yeah. model how yeah. they do that. Yeah, right? right. For sure. Yeah. So yeah, it, it is really in, like, like we were talking about in model, you know, the, the people at the agencies aren't the ones making those decisions. They're just like, you know, making the, doing what the clients want. But here we are having the people who are making those decisions and getting an insight into that, which is like very valuable, I think. Yeah, for sure. Um, oh, I wanted to talk about this li little tiny scene. It's a small one, but um, kind of going along with like how Wiseman is deconstructing this image performance. Um, it, it didn't stick out to me the first time I watched it, but there's this, uh, there's this shot that we see this guy like setting the flowers on the table in one like set display. Mm. And we see him like tossing all the like extra pieces out on the floor around, like all these stems and stuff all around him. And it turns like this beautiful, like display retail space into like this weird, like behind the scenes with like trash on the floor. And it is just like a, a really like nice, like tidy illustration of like this natural deconstruction um, of like this, you know, reality, this transported reality. But it's also a great example of how Wiseman is using, along with the escalator shots, like these transitional shots for more than mm -hmm. one purpose, like yeah. we've talked about in the past, um, which is just, you know, because he's on another level. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it um, might have been was it Mamber who's talking about those scenes a little bit? Um, just like the escalators are another instance of the conveyor belt of the assembly line. And oh yeah. Like, yeah. He did write that. We are, you know, as uh, customers, like, you know, the meat that's being processed throughout the store, <laughs> uh -huh. you know, like <laughs> I thought that was really good and, and apt, but like, you know, the, the escalators are also have this like, just like uh, structural, function of of bringing us from department to department and, and scene to scene that's that's uh, very satisfying and in, in a way of of breaking up and connecting all the all the different sequences yeah. um we, we talked about a few uh filmic references with miriam about them but uh one i forgot to mention that that came up for me was um uh shoot that that powell and pressburger joint um a matter of life and death uh, with like the staircase to heaven sort of thing mm -hmm. like there is this weird ghostly element to this whole thing and i mean you talked about the clown right like yeah yeah or like the guy with the sable that's like empty mm -hmm. is like <laughs> very kind of like ghostly but i mean you can you can imagine like some depiction of heaven where like oh it's people or people getting to heaven, you know, it's, it's people from all walks of life, you know, here's a doctor, here's someone who was hit by a car, like, here's a clown that's just floating up, you know, and I mean, this guy, this clown, for what it's worth, was totally playing it up, he's just, like, holding, yeah, yeah. holding this, like, creepy smile and looking straight on <laughs> uh, the whole time he's going up the escalator, but yeah, it, it's, it's a very evocative uh, image. Um, so I wanted to talk about, uh, well, actually before I get there, um, the, the end, um, because like, especially mm. since we're talking about like, uh, the various hierarchies, like between taste hierarchies and also the hierarchy that we talk about later with Miriam with, of like the, that the customers have over the salespeople. Mm -hmm. Um, and then also the hierarchy within the store, uh, employee based, um, 
it's really interesting that that at the end that we see like this you know employee meaning about how everyone no matter where they are in the company like has this pride that they wear for Neiman Marcus um and then we see like the real owner Stanley Marcus yeah. um and he's singing my way and uh in between those scenes are like more shots of like laborers and they're in like the mail room and stock rooms and like the valets at the the uh banquet hall and so we're seeing like this actual like like i said like actual hierarchy like firmly in place where this guy is like the owner is asserting like his dominance right like at the end of the day like they like the idea is to have these employees feel pride for this place Mm -hmm. so that they can better keep them like where they are you know like this this like restating where they actually stand instead of like wanting more right Mm -hmm. like if you feel pride for where you are then you won't ask for anything more Mm -hmm. and stanley marcus will stay at the top yeah well also it's it's interesting that the film's kind of bookended by his presence too and and when we first meet him you know unless you're being very astute you you might not catch who he is or what he represents um because i think you see him like signing a copy of his book and then they close it you know and you get a quick glimpse of it um and then he has this other like kind of talking head scene in front of this abstract painting talking about like buyers um corporate buyers and stuff there's a story i told I've told on some occasions at these meetings that uh, I think it summarizes a feeling of manufacturers. Manufacturer came to a buying office and uh, of a store and said, I'd like to see Miss Goldstein. And the receptionist said, well, I'm sorry to tell you, Miss Goldstein passed away last month. He said, really? He said, yes. And he came back in a half hour and he said, I'd like to see Miss Goldstein. And she said, uh, I told you, Miss Goldstein passed away. Perhaps you didn't understand me. Shook his head. He came back another half hour and he said, I'd like to see Miss Goldstein. She said, Miss Goldstein is dead. I've told you that now three times. Why do you keep coming back and asking me the question? He said, because I just love to hear you say it. <laughs> <laughs> and like, you know, we don't know who he is necessarily at that point either. But I mean, as we'll talk about later, this idea of like this film being a film about a cult or, or a cult of personality, you know, um, the the staging at the end is like fucking something out of reef install, mm-hmm. you know, like, like yeah, with, is. with, with him at the head and he's got like this giant gold star behind him, you know? And like, yeah, it's like very like Mussolini, like for sure. It's like famous shots. Yeah. Like, so, I mean, just talking about a cult of personality, you know, it's a cult of, you know, I guess like a capitalist, uh, success story. Um, and I mean, <laughs> you, we should note, I mean, Stanley Marcus wasn't the founder. He was the son the original founder you know so it's it's uh, you know even more kind of he did it his way (laughs) right yeah yeah exactly makes it a little little sillier um one small note did you think did you catch this dude at the waiter at that banquet who was like ladies and gentlemen 
Dinner is served. Like, I thought he had a very clearly fake mustache, like, taped to his slip. I don't know. Check everyone at home. Check that out. See if you agree. But it seemed like a comically fake, like, SNL-level mustache (laughs) that uh, he was wearing. I wonder if anyone else thinks that. Um, Well, on the subject of lips, um, we got to talk about smile training. Uh, oh, yeah. something that, that Jessica Kingdom brought up. Yeah, um. but Neiman Marcus is a selling institution. And every morning when you wake up and you enter this building until the minute you leave at night, that's the only purpose we have in life. Now, how we do it and why we do it is what distinguishes us from everybody else. Stacy and I are giving a meeting, and we decided that the best way to get through Christmas is to have a very positive attitude. And in order to have a positive attitude, you have to feel good. In order to feel good, you have to exercise. And the things that are most important for us here are hands, so we can punch the tickets in the cash register, and smiles. So what I thought we should do is we should all get up this morning and we should do facial and hand exercises, because I know you don't want to run. And we don't have time for calisthenics. So everybody get up and we'll do some exercises. Oh, <laughs> You told me I had to do something different, didn't you? In those shoes. idea of social control and institutionalization i mean like that you know everything is sales um even your face even your like wrists you know it's like all of it is to serve the sale and um god i mean like for all the training i assume they have no one really seemed very good at smiling i gotta say (laughs) it's funny seeing them do the calisthenics where they're like moving their arms and stuff it looked like basic training like very reminiscent of like Mm -hmm. some of the movements that they had to do like all in a line you know and being told what to do and when to do it yeah yeah one 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 thing that i i uh wanted to talk about before we we uh wrap up the intro whenever we do that um (laughs) is uh something that i loved out of uh benson and anderson's book uh or chapter on this um which is just a really great chapter i think we both really loved it um, and they, they actually talk a lot about the contemporaneous discourse as well, um, and do a good job of it. <clears throat> but, uh, and they, they just talk generally about Wiseman's, uh, work, but one of the best, uh, parts of it is this, this little, like two or three chapter or paragraphs on the absence of outcomes, mm-hmm. yeah. um, that I thought was worth talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, I, I noted those paragraphs as well as being just like very well thought out and expressed. Yeah. Uh, so they, they talk about how Wiseman puts us in a peculiar spot because there is no clear narrative structure and the absence of narrative encourages us to like investigate each scene with, with a different criteria than we're used to in most mm-hmm. cinema, which, you know, goes back to like everybody in interviews asking about, you know, how he puts stuff together. But, um, but there also isn't isn't one primary set criteria that everyone brings to Wiseman cinema. 
So people are finding their own ways into various scenes based on their own relationships. You know, like maybe they are from Dallas, um, uh, what have you, uh, or your, your different relationship to the milieu in question, basically. Um, and then there, there's also like trying to understand the formal and thematic relations, the f- formal and thematic relations between um, scenes of the film. And Benson and Ander- Anderson call that like the speculative plane. Um, and the key to how Wiseman orchestrates his films is this penchant for eschewing outcomes. So the same way that, you know, he issues titles and expositional information, uh, for any given scene that we've talked a lot about, um, we also just don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we're, we're given like this job interview in the store. We don't know if she gets the job right. or like a, a scene about policy in state legislator or like a bill. We don't know what's going to happen to that bill. Um, or like there are a bunch of scenes about like city plans or ideas coming to fruition in city hall or like meetings about what's going to happen with a certain business. We don't know what's going to happen. What happened to Hickman once he, he was shipped <laughs> off after basic training? <laughs> yeah. So we're never given those those uh, actual outcomes, and according to to, to Benson and Anderson, um, I'm going to read this this uh, passage from them. The absence of outcomes encourages us in a variety of ways to attend to the motives, both expressed and implicit, of the actors in the scenes. And they go on to, to say that we we never know when a scene is likely to end. Yeah. Um, and because of that lack of outcome, we don't have an easy narrative line to like carry us from scene to scene the stuff that makes you kind of like uh me at least zone out in a lot of films you know um and without that easy narrative reasoning wiseman's films like if we care to understand them face us to watch more actively and figure out what the hell's going on yeah I, i mean this this chapter we were talking about you know to me we've this question has come up before how how do you watch a weissman film you know the Mm -hmm. the answer is in this chapter and and in these passages you're discussing i think Um, yeah the like this thing about an absence of outcomes and also like like they they say you never know like you were just saying then you never know when a scene's going to end it makes you have to watch as if the scene could end in any moment and, and like offer the film the same attention throughout, which I guess, you know, can create an experience of exhaustion maybe because like you can't really zone out because the most important moment can kind of happen at any time, which, which is the exciting thing about it, I think. Right. And like, they call it, um, like the, the engagement, with Weissman film is like a dance, you know, it's a complimentary action that the viewer is participating in with Weissman and like you're, you, um, can enjoy like the pleasure as it is just as a film, or you can engage with the meanings and like the ideology, but like there's a richness in that, that interaction, you know, that is really unique, I think to, to this body of work. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think like I've been sort of in a funk in terms of watching like other people's movies recently <laughs> or like other films for the past like you couple months. Blew out just, your taste buds. Yeah, I just <laughs> been like, there's nothing that does it for me right now besides Wiseman because like, like I become like it's unfair, but I become sort of like just not in the mood or like uninterested in that like narrative line that brings you from scene to scene that that doesn't that keeps Mm -hmm. you from 
from like being so uh, actively engaged in trying to figure out what's going on and what's of interest. And like, they talk about once you're in a major scene, like why it's a major scene um, and what's the punchline. Right. Um, And also like we talk about with Miriam, like just the various dynamics that are going on um, between two people are often just like the meat of the scene. Mm -hmm. And all of that stuff is just like, that's that's what makes these movies so addictive and so interesting and there's just there's just no one else that did it like him yeah one one uh kind of analogy they made that was really interesting to me was like they they liken weissman to emerging of uh melier and the lumaires as like you know this kind of lumaire documentary realism approach with like melier's like surreal fantasticalism Mm -hmm. you know and and that that is the reality fiction right that weissman coined and from which you know they they took the title of their book um but like you know i guess stretching back to to the genesis of of cinema of like you know he, he encompasses like all tendencies and like yeah uh how do you go back to to watching uh you know the latest a24 fair or whatever after you've been so like uh immersed in this um yeah yeah i was we were talking a bit before uh we started recording about stuff we've been watching and and um Jessica Kingdom brought up Wang Bing, and and I had the opportunity to uh, spend my Fourth of July diving into West of the Tracks, his nine-hour epic about a Northeast Chinese factory town, um, and you know it, it's from our position doing what we've been doing. It was it was very hard for me to um, not engage with it like I would one of Weissman's films but I think it, it it's one that offers similar opportunities to do so you know it's it's very it I wouldn't liken the the approach or like the style necessarily to Weissman but like like these more substantive uh, ways of engaging and um, uh, navigating through a film that's not necessarily, uh, you know, devoted to narrative and like, you know, so what do you hang your hat on? What are these like formal elements? What are these thematic elements that carry you through the film and, and, and allow you to like come to this like satisfying whole? Um, yeah. Um, one, yeah. one thing, uh, Benson and Anderson also bring up, I just want to touch on that. That is interesting is like this Gramsci idea, of uh, hegemony and like uh, how you can how one can critique a society from within it you know and like mm-hmm. like this idea I guess of the Gramscian uh, like a counter hegemonic organic intellectual um, which is like you know the the demystification is, is the term they use is like Weissman may exist in all this but he can uh, recognize uh, through his his filming and editing and thinking about it all, you know what what are really the core uh, upper operatives at play and like what what's really going on. So like I think that that's a key thing we should continue to look at is like demystification, like this this thing where you and I are pushing against in a lot of these contemporaneous reviews of like not showing anything new, right? Well, the only way to show you what's actually going on is is to show you it right like right right you know and how do you get at that if you don't see it 
Yeah, I have a feeling we're going to be talking about that a lot with Racetrack, something like next, mm-hmm. um, without having seen the film, but just something that is a sport and like you're, you know, you're just watching the sport that happens, but there's so much that goes on in order for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess we'll see. Yeah, I guess as, as we're winding down, um, one last thing as we're uh, Mir- Miriam uh offer some really good recommendations uh on other like department store films uh in our discussion um uh, her her knowledge of classic cinema far exceeds my own um but uh well first i want to say one i'm i meant to bring up in the last episode about model um that we will probably discuss again in central park is uh symbiopsychotaxoplasm take one um the william greaves film that uh is shot in new york in central park like model um, but also very much is dealing uh with ideas of like movie making and documentary production and like truth and framing and and all the things we were talking about in model so uh, definitely watch that if you haven't it's a seismic film um, but for the purposes of the store um I revisited a more recent doc that that I really like and I think is is under heralded um, called Jasper Mall, um, which is about uh, a mall in Jasper, Mississippi. No, uh, Alabama. Sorry, um, but you know, altogether all a much more uh, common experience in terms of, I guess, like Southern retail, you know, when, when, Mm -hmm. when the people in the meetings are talking about like taste and like who they're for and who they're not for, they're not for the people who shop at Jasper mall, right? Like, you know, they're not a mall. They're not a place to hang out or get out of the rain. They're a place to buy fancy things, you know? Um, but Jasper mall is, is that other side of the coin though? Only now it's, um, when this come out like late late 20 teens you know 2020 maybe it came out so shot around then but like um this you know post internet retail environment right the death of the american mall um and how it's sort of hobbling you know into the modern day and i mean i did i did look it up it does seem to still be out there uh with shops but i mean that that's a really uh one i encourage people uh... to check out What's it called? The Mega Mall or whatever? That's that's gone. Uh, the one in Minnesota or whatever? Yeah, yeah, Mall of America. Yeah. yeah. Mall of America. Um speaking about that, like uh one thing that was mentioned in the notcoming.com uh review of the store um from the late two thousands was they were they were kind of like putting it into this like Texas, quirky eighties Texas mm. uh made by East Coasters. Hmm um thing uh, like, like a true so, story sort of thing or? true stories and thin blue line uh, um and true stories is a, i think a great call like yeah. uh which a film that came out two years later i think like one of like my favorite films and um takes place largely in a middle class mall and uh the type that neiman marcus like directly kind of like tries to oppose itself but uh, the writer says that it's possible burn was was influenced by the fashion show in in the mm, store totally um, yeah. And I can imagine Burn catching the store on PBS, you know, like for sure. being taken with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's really funny uh, to think about. Yeah, pro- probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, and again, we get another fashion show. It's not relegated to model. You know, this is the third one we've had, uh, including Canal yeah. Zone. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, thin, thin blue line is, is interesting example as well. You know, um, Errol Morris would come to be like one of the main doc dudes in the published con- public consciousness off the success of that film. Um, it was, I was just talking on Twitter earlier today about like which documentaries have actually had like some kind of material impact as a result of, of their production. And, you know, that's like top of the list in terms right. of, of what it did. Uh, we don't need to talk about them blue line, but <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I'm sad that we didn't find a way to sneak in. Um, one of my favorite lines from, from the store, which is uh, Washington, Washington's birthday. It is a very meaningful event, particularly in coats, we understand, do, over Washington. Do, do they promote heavily in San yes, Francisco? Yeah. Yes, Washington's yeah. Birthday? yeah. <laughs> it's so good. Also, also the stuff about, like, the Zodiac room mm. and, Oh, like, the Kennedy assassination? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's like... Don't, 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 eat, don't eat at the Zodiac room. You know, those, of, those of you who grew up with that, and I've had people talk to me about that in the most... almost as explicitly remembering the details as a child of eating in the Zodiac Room as some people can describe to you the details of where they were the day John Kennedy was assassinated. I mean, you know, that, that kind of extreme emotional event that is so intense in you and so deep that you can just literally repeat it verbatim. Oh, yeah, the first time I walked into this fucking, like, chintzy <laughs> department store restaurant, like, I remember that like the day Kennedy was shot. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, you know, like Miriam uh, is about to talk about when we cut over there, like uh, this, this is like arguably an overt comedy, at least in a way that that previous Weissman films haven't been. Um, So like, yeah, notes like that are just uh, very (laughs) funny and silly and pleasurable. Yeah. All right. Well, you can email us at wisemanpodcast at Gmail and I, uh, you, you definitely can do so to buy a t-shirt this uh, third yeah right. those shirts are fifteen dollars uh plus shipping um yeah <laughs> all right uh so uh enjoy um our discussion of the store with Marion bale good one Welcome back to Wiseman Podcast. We're here with uh, our guest, Miriam Bale, the artistic director of Indie Memphis Film Festival. Uh, her work has also appeared in Sight and Sound, New York Magazine, New York Times, IndieWire, uh, a whole bunch of places. Um, how are you doing, Miriam? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me, Sean and Arlen. It's, uh, thank you for having me for honestly one of my favorite films and one of my favorites i think probably my favorites of, of my favorite of wiseman so right i'm on. honored to be here today yeah um, happy to have you yeah so how how did you get in into wiseman like what was your intro to to his work um uh i probably saw titty cup follies like early like when i was studying film um and i thought it was interesting but it was um, during a Wiseman retrospective, golly, I don't remember what year, maybe 2010. Um, and I, it was really welfare that got me like, that was like, oh my God, this is something else. This is amazing. And then I was sold and, you know, um, 
I think the films I didn't see in the retrospective at that time, um, I had to like ask for favors to see, um, but tried to see as many as possible. And then um, the store, I can't remember when I saw it, but um, it became a favorite and I was, I realized I've done a screening. I organized a screening of the store with um, the filmmaker Zach Clark when he made White Reindeer. And we showed some like underrated Christmas movies and this was one of them. Very cool. Right on. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So what is it exactly about the store that, uh, that, that makes it like one of your favorite of his that, that you chose it? Well, the store is probably one of the most overtly funny, but I think that, and I've written about, I've written about Wiseman and also Chantal Ackerman and Cronenberg as like Jewish comics and like not always written about that way. Hmm. And I think this is one of the most like overtly comic. And then in reviewing it, I realized it's also an interesting Jewish Christmas movie as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting. Yeah, because I mean, like, I think, you know, we've we've talked a little bit about what, you know, Weissman's upbringing and, and environment he grew up uh, within may have lended his work and his approach, uh, asked him about it in the interview. Um, but this there was a story in one of the reviews we read this was the first time I came across it about like there not being any Jewish frats uh, yeah. at his undergrad and him like taking some kind of umbrage with that and, you know, kind of setting him off on this like anti-institutional uh, path for himself. Interesting. <laughs> I think around, around the same time that he, um, around the same time that the Wiseman retrospective was happening, I think he presented a film at IFC of his choice and he chose duck soup, which hmm. since you've done your research, I'm sure, you know, is one of his favorites. And um, so it's interesting to me that that's, it was interesting to me then that that was the film that he chose. And I think that's when I started, um, especially, I mean, in there you have uh, also the school of, of, Jewish comedians, you know, like, but, um, and I think he's described uh, the Marx Brothers as documentaries. <laughs> Marx Brothers movies, Duck Soup, and, <laughs> and like, I, I would love to know more, but I mean, they are, there is so much, um, there is so much, um, uh, so much, uh, you know, um, well, like, D Duck Soup is directed by Leo McCary, right? And uh -huh. he's the, and he was like a king of improvisation. So I suppose there is a certain amount of of um, of documentary, but I would love to know more mm -hmm. about what he means. And then as far as the the Jewish comic, like I'm, you know, my name is Miriam, but I'm not Jewish. And um, so I'm not an I'm not I, this is not my lane necessarily, <laughs> but um, but I do think that there is a history, you know, I think that there is this tradition of, um, of Jewish comedy. And I think all three of the directors I mentioned are just naturally drawn to it. And, um, 
I mean, your interview with him was so clear. Like he's so funny and so dry when yeah. he was just like, when he was, when he was like, it was a joke. <laughs> and when, and when he was like saying like, what did he say? I wrote it down. He's like, when you were asking about the cuts with the, the uh-huh. jump cuts with the planes and he's like i don't think that affected the behavior of the plane right, yeah. <laughs> oh, <funny. laughs> he's, he's so funny and i think that that and like i was looking at past interviews and i think it was an interview with nick newman and he asked like favorite moments in film in his films and he said well i can tell you amusing moments things that you know like that he thinks were funny and he he it he he referenced a scene from Essane, which is in mm. my other favorite, which I would love. But I, I wonder which scene he meant. Maybe the potato, maybe the potato mm. peeler. That scene, or or maybe like the scene where that guy is swatting at the fly. Those two are like amazing. Yeah, pretty. pretty oh, you're there. probably right. That that was the other favorite that I had seen um, at the time the, uh, during that retrospective. But um, yeah, so I so what do you think about my theory of him as a, like in the <laughs> in the Marx Brothers Cronenberg Jewish comedy. <laughs> before before we line. before we let the, the resident Jew uh, chime in, I will say that that uh, I think that that's a really interesting like triad there because they all have just distinct sensibilities and they're they're not like they're not asking you or they're not like sort of leading you to the laugh, right? Like that's not what Cronenberg and, and Ackerman are doing. Um, they just are them themselves, and they do things that they think are funny. Um, and you're, if you're on that wavelength, it's really funny. Yeah, I guess. Well, I'll say, you know, uh, Miriam, happy to lend you whatever uh, Jewish cred is required to discuss these topics this episode. Uh, um, but yeah, no, it's it's interesting that this is, I guess, the film that you're seeing that in, and also like the Weissman Christmas film. Um, being, I guess, in Dallas, but centered around what is, in a sense, a Jewish institution, you know, the Marcus family and yeah. Stanley Marcus, um, you know, being the center of it at the time of the filming. Um, and also there's uh, Art Buchwald at the end, uh, who's like, I, I took it as kind of like a Berkshire, like old school uh, Jewish comedian, what, the Borscht Belt, uh, what was that circuit? Um, but, you know, I think there, it, this is not a scene, right? Um, this is Christmas, like American style, I guess, like, you know, Christmas, the commercial event, um, but no less of a religious film and a religious, religious treatment, um, and something I, I really haven't been able to get out of my head, uh, revisiting it was something our our previous guest um Alyssa noted is like you know at some point she just realized this is a movie about a cult you know and that seems really apt um especially thinking about Stanley Marcus as this like cult of personality figure who is like disseminating this ethos of like commerce and capitalism um you know I I guess it's kind of a liberal ethos because they they art makes mention of like um some 
anti-McCarthy stances in the 50s, which I looked up and I guess he just <laughs> refused to like remove some art by supposed communists in an exhibition he put together or funded or something like that. Um, but like the, I think something that has kept coming up from me, uh, as it relates to Weissman's Judaism is this like outsider perspective and coming into this, the institution of Christmas as an outsider through, uh, this like very, uh, approachable angle of like commercialism and, uh, profit driven activity, you know, the, the opening scene that sets the context for the entire film right is sales 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 you know it's all sales so like um yeah i i'm on board you know (laughs) i'm sold yeah i love the idea of it as a cult i mean as you said the cult of capitalism obviously and um but and then i hadn't seen um in fabric when i saw this last mm. time and now i can't help but think of that film in so many <laughs> of the scenes which is just like it's yeah. so right on of that sort of like the scariness of some of those sales ladies yeah like this the seamstress basement or whatever right with like yeah. there's the in, in fact, I mean, it's been a while since I've seen In Fabric, but isn't there like a recurring thing about elevators in that? Uh, mm-hmm. Like one of those big kind of like freight elevators that they use to get into the, the seamstress area. But like, yeah, I mean, there's this whole underground, like behind the scenes network, right? Of the seamstresses and like the jewelry makers. Like upstairs, and, downstairs. Totally, totally. Yeah. Or as you guys have been talking about a sort of backstage stage thing you especially see like in model too like you know and here i mean here you see the you know the the upstairs downstairs and this backstage stage with the um well we'll talk about it later but like the peak of that difference is like the chicken scene obviously which is my god so <laughs> important we'll get to there we'll get to there we'll, <laughs> we've got to pace ourselves yeah. as <laughs> But even like as far as in fabric, just that like really, um, I think she's, um, I think she's British, but her accent Mm -hmm. is sort of general Euro, that one sales lady who's so scary, who says like, with she's with that lady who wants the skirt and the blouse and she only wants the skirt. And she kept, she keeps trying to like, kind of, I think, kind of, um, I think she's trying to talk her into not getting the skirt like I think she doesn't think it's um flattering and Mm -hmm. she keeps and and she just has that scary accent she's and she says I'd only come in here without my jacket for you Mary Lou (laughs) 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 could totally see her being a murderer I love that I love that scene just in general there's so much going on there's like there's there's this like tug of war between the the uh the client and the saleswoman who who's like doesn't think that it's a good idea what you know it's going to be too heavy she keeps saying <laughs> and and but like there's like this feeling that, that like the the client the the customer she's like i i can do whatever i want here and like doesn't matter how much you don't think it's going to work like i'm going to like i have the power here and i can leave whenever i want and the um, hips yeah in the <laughs> hips and uh I don't know. There, there's just like this. There's also this feeling that she's not only just like looking for something to buy, but she's buying the experience of being in control of this That's person. So exactly right. It's so exactly right. And yet there's so much insecurity that goes along with that. And like, 
like she, you can tell she's insecure, but at the same time she knows she's the one in power there's just such a power i think that's that's what i see that's so scary in that scene is this Mm -hmm. like there's like a huge power struggle in that's like very polite Mm -hmm. loving power struggle between the two it's also interesting that scene and, and quite a few of the scenes here um coming off of model which you guys just talked about um because I think there's that scene where Andy Warhol is talking about the models, but they mm. never wear those fabulous clothes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they don't wear this. Ta- it, would, it would be terrific. But um, he, but here is who's actually buying the, the clothes. And it's these like older rich ladies, you know, mm. like it's not like, it's oh, like, yeah. it's a completely, and there's, there's a, um, it's such a, a different um it's a it's such a different dynamic different look yeah for sure like yeah. The, yeah it's it's the image um that they're they're buying but um i i wanted to before we get too far away from that upstairs downstairs like the seamstresses and stuff i kind of wanted to talk about like how that is how they're not talked about like by anyone in the store like mm. behind the scenes you know like it, it's always like this idea of like prestige like this this like performance of image that you know they're talking about like the no jewish delicatessen like the international (laughs) european attitude food shop um and like you know because then you start to develop a different kind of audience he says the jewish delicatessen you see what i'm saying (laughs) yeah yeah um and uh like the whole i think idea of this movie is like part of it at least is like deconstructing that 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 image performance um that we're you know so used to and part of that is to show like these people working down there and um also to show like conversations about like manufacturers and buyers and to like kind of realize slowly that like neiman marcus is um it's curation right like that's that's like the special thing that they have there is like this they have a curation that they put together in this like transported reality um and that's what people go there for but really they're just buying shit right and um they're like people are coming there for the prestige and part of the prestige is not knowing that there are people in the basement doing all of this actual like hard work yeah they want they want to like uh elide the actual labor you know make it kind of a magic thing you know you in envision the thing and you get the thing you know how it how it happens that don't worry about that like you know we got that covered um and it would probably uh alighting the true labor also really probably helps to i don't know if justify is the right word but but in relation to the price of the these goods right if if people knew you know what actually was going into it maybe they wouldn't be paying you know fifty thousand dollars for a coat um who's to say um, I mean, if they knew about, <laughs> about the monford plant yeah, right right yeah i mean i mean i guess you know bear keith grant uh said this is the third in the package souls trilogy starting with meat right um and just taking that idea of what's going on here and what you guys were just talking about with like image in that scene with the changing room and and you know, I, I almost just call them servants because that's kind of how they're behaving. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, we have this repeating motif 
that we also had in model of mirrors and shooting into mirrors and the way here mirrors operate and it's like you are projecting yourself into the image that was itself transmitted to you by like the the ad agency people right mm-hmm. you know how'd you even get into the store to learn about this product you probably saw it in the magazine or the newspaper or whatever at the time so like you are becoming uh that image and it's like just kind of completes the cycle but this this one sales lady this like english lady um you know going back to what you're saying this like not jewish delicatessen thing you know we have her we have uh, this, like, very quick shot of, like, I don't even know what they were selling, but these women in kimonos, um, this discussion of, like, Chinese rug, this whole, rugs. like, international uh, feel they're trying to curate, you know? Like, they're trying to uh, differentiate themselves from, like, you know, whatever other store in Dallas people might be going to mm-hmm. uh, to lend it this this international feel, which is you know, doubly ironic in, I guess, Texas in the Reagan era, right, at this time of, like, intense nationalism. Uh, but here we are, like, trying to be Europe. Yeah, I don't even know if it's quite curation. Like, I think, like, cur- curation is a more contemporary idea of it, and I think it's more, like, prestige. Like, it's not even about having the best objects or the most interesting objects it's having the most expensive objects really it's just really about like like um yeah i don't know like that reminds me of the uh stainless steel cupware where they're like putting the price on it oh and these are made in england this designer is an american designer she's been designing in england for 15 years and she just had a show at harrods these are absolutely stunning, but I don't know. They, really they look like twenty thousand dollars. Mm. I mean, who, what would you drink out of them? Mint, Mint juleps. The picture is six thousand dollars. Five hundred. Sixty-five hundred. Mm-hmm. The toasting goblets. Two. Right. And they are. Right. With stones. These are like moonstones, and the the brides or whatever the ladies has a diamond in it. With moonstone, oh, they're not all diamonds. No, no, no. With moonstone. One for eight thousand. Like, which is exactly what you're talking about, Miriam. It's like yeah. it's not about. Like, he goes, I don't even know what I'm drinking here. Like, it, it has <laughs> yeah. nothing to do with anything other than there's diamonds in it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a extremely '80s, like 1980s, mm. like kind of like. Um, like the what they would call the yuppie culture Mm -hmm. at the time Mm -hmm. um and it is interesting how it's different from this like more contemporary idea of curation but um yeah i i think that um the yeah the food thing is so interesting when they're talking about very specifically important Mm -hmm. that we continue as the shop develops with this attitude in baked goods, that same continuing attitude in the foods. What we want to avoid is getting into commercial kind of looks. No matter who wants a, uh, a buttercream with roses, it's unavailable. <laughs> <laughs> and we we don't want the the meat cases to evolve their way into looking like the normal Jewish delicatessen on 72nd Street and Broadway in New York. 
it, it's a fabulous look, and I love those kind of delicatessens, but it's not what Neiman Marcus wants to be. We want an international, European attitude food shop. And that's the one thing that as you people oversee the operation, we're anxious for you to be sensitive that when the salamis come in, they don't start piling them seven high and that the blue roses show up on the white buttercream cakes. And it happens. It happened to us in White Plains. And once it happens to you, then you begin to develop a different audience because you can't sell blue roses next to kiwi tarts. It just won't work. <laughs> back. Like it was like the incident. Yeah. 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 Um uh Arlen, you're talking about sort of like the the um where it's situated in Dallas, it reminds me of like the the opening shots with which uh, Grant also talks about, but the opening shot is like of this Dallas skyline and it's shot from so far away that it, it looks like it looks totally removed from anything around it. It's like in a wasteland. That's almost. exactly yeah. what I was thinking. It looks <laughs> yeah. like it's in a wasteland and then there's like this windy amb ambient noise and then that turns into the sounds of a city bus and there's like people getting off the bus, but like you get the feeling that people aren't riding the bus to Neiman Marcus, right? <laughs> For sure. Yeah. But those, those are the first people we see, whether they're going inside or they're just like hanging out out front or whatever, for whatever reason, those are the first people Weissman decides to show us. And maybe it's just by virtue of having an outdoor establishing shot. Um, but uh, we don't really see any of those people people presumably through the rest of the film it's all very intensely within the store yeah. yeah i like that the title in this case is also like clearly what the people who work there call it you know like that's what mm -hmm. i think they reference it as the store and i think even um marcus's uh, autobiography is mining the store you know and, oh, right yeah yeah and like and i think yeah, so I think it's one of these things where it becomes a little bit um, more self-referential of, of the title. Um, have you guys seen this on a big screen? Have you had a chance? Oh, no. I'd I wish, to. yeah. Have it's you, amazing. So you have, right? Yeah, because I did a screening of it yeah. and then saw it before that. But it's um, it's amazing how many details, like you were mentioning, the mirrors. Mm. And there's just like so many posters. There's just so much detail. And I don't know if it's also because it's color. Um, mm. Because I think with black and white, it focuses the image sometimes a little bit more. And here, I'm not sure if it has to do with it also mm. being in color or if it just is the nature mm. of what he's he's shooting. Um, how how was it for you guys watching? I know you've you're doing it in order. So how after watching all these black and white films, how was it to see something in oh color? Yeah, it just uh, it I mean it just pops like right away um, as just like this. You, you know, like we we talked a lot about, and I I kind of mentioned this during our interview with him about like how <clears throat> so many of the films in the '70s have this like anachronistic look because they're in black and white. And they don't always announce themselves like as the time period that they're in, which makes for interesting effects. And this is like the complete opposite where you're just like, okay, I know exactly where I'm at. Yeah. I mean, and like, I guess similar to some scenes in model, like the color is like spoken about explicitly in such a way that you might feel like you're losing something if you're not able to see that and i think black and white you know obviously has this like inherently distancing effect to it 
And there were a number of reviewers uh, writing contemporaneously who saw the film as being like uncritical and just kind of like showcasing this like (laughs) high class, you know, level of of commerce, um, which was bizarre to read. But like, like, you know, I think if it had been in black and white, um, people might not really have had that um, misconception about it, I think, because it it's visually um, the color seductive, right? There is a danger, I think, of getting wrapped up in this, uh, like maybe some of those those reviewers did. Um, but you think about, you know, the first line of the film being like, it's too orange, <laughs> or like, you know, talking about, you know, the intense color, like inside some kind of like gemstone, um or Or even the clown like the clown i keep thinking about (laughs) is like an extremely evocative image um i mean partly because he's just like floating there towards the screen but like also the color of the clown for sure yeah i mean it's all it's all really i mean and even subtle things you know thinking about this repeated motif of the escalator that's just kind of gray and bright white it even adding color to that lends like a certain like kind of eerie sci-fi quality that probably wouldn't have been present in black and white. That's so true. Do you want to talk about some of those um can the the reviews at the time? Because I did oh, have sure. a chance to. I mean, I I just read the um the one from the New York Times, the John Corey one, and it's mm-hmm. so fascinating. It's so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah, by all means. Yeah, what what what's what uh, stood out to you as as so egregious about it? Um, just so much. Everything was wrong. Like he, he, he's <laughs> saying exactly what you're saying. He's like, he, what does he say? He says, if he makes a film, we assume it is about something and not right. just about images, which is just such a fascinating line for, um. For, for his someone work. writing about <laughs> yeah film and TV, yeah. Yeah. Oh my he god, call, he calls. Tell, uh, don't get me started. It's still true. <laughs> documentary, <laughs> documentary oh, reviews. Sure. Yeah, yeah. But what like were you that, saying? John? He calls it redundant and says that cinema verite as an art form is limited and doesn't exist as an art film in itself. And he call, he calls it like art turned inside out. Um, yeah, and it, does, it it only allows the viewer to be a, a voyeur of the undifferentiated. Um, in, yeah, in, that's uh, right. And then he follows that up with saying, "We forget what it is that we want to see." What does that even mean? <laughs> and why? Why should that matter, though? Too like, why does it matter what we would want to see? You know, uh, like right? uh, coming to a movie, it, it just you're you're setting yourself up for disappointment. There's a good retort in um, Benson and Anderson's book of, uh, directly of this review where. They say too frequently Wiseman's critics trust his audiences less than he does, thereby casting yeah. themselves adrift from their own readers. Um, That's so true. Yeah, I I have a lot of thought. Like, I think Corey, like, I, I think um, review, reviewers at this time, because I think he re- references Follies. Is that right? Um I, I, yeah, I feel he does like... in the beginning. Let's see, what does he say? He said that that one, like in saying that that's about something, he's saying that that's about about. Um... Yeah, it exposes truths that needed to be exposed, or something like that. Yeah, something like that. I mean, no, he just says, he says, um, he's the, the justly celebrate celebrated titty cut follies that he said is um, the truth at Bridgewater. 
broader state was that the guards hit inmates with blackjacks. The truth at Nina Marcus is that the escalators run smoothly and then blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Which is funny because um, like we came into similar criticism with welfare, like people saying that um, like, oh, well, we know what's happening there. Like, why Mm -hmm. do we need to see it? Oh, he's not showing us anything new. And like, like um, scholars have talked about and like we've mentioned about this is like, he's not trying to show you anything new. It's like trying to dissociate uh, something that like that we have probably become a nerd to mm-hmm. and try to like understand it better. Yeah. I, th- I think, you know, Walcott said the same thing about model, you know, there's no new information here. And I mean, it's just so reductive. James for... Walcott. Uh, sorry. James Walcott. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we've we've come up against him a few times throughout oh, the series. Oh, no. yeah. <laughs> he's yeah. a village voice, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he started he started out in the early, you know, few films of of Weissman's body of work, like being pretty on board, you know, a supporter, and then it seems like I guess as kind of what we're talking about as as the subjects sort of become a bit more less direct and pointed like he seems to fall off and and starts to really become a critic of Weissman for that but I mean it's 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 everything we're talking about here just in terms of like what expectations were and probably in some circles continue to be for what like documentaries are supposed to be and do People love films about the other, like they want, Mm, you know, like the Titty Cut Follies, obviously. And then, I mean, it's so interesting that people fell off with welfare, but it's interesting that this reviewer was talking about voyeurism in this film because people, especially New York Times readers, I think often don't like uh, documentaries about their own worlds. They want Mm -hmm. the others so they don't want to be a voyeur in their own lives yeah for sure um i I think folly is also like as well as like showing like an other i think it becomes like critics use it as like this this like crutch or like this like standard as like this like undeniable classic like this self-evident classic um, and like, you're like, okay, I know why he would go to Bridgewater to, to make a movie about these people. I don't, I, I don't know why he would have gone to Canal Zone or, or, uh, you know, Monford plant. Um, and so it just becomes like this, this like cudgel for them. And, um, and also like playing into the expectations, uh, um, as well, like he had just gotten the genius award before this. And like, there are, there are a lot of reviews that talk about him as like, the mo- like this like world renowned uh filmmaker or like the one of the most important documentary filmmakers um alive so i can see like why or you know it's not hard to imagine like incurious cr- like critics being like okay let's see what he's got for me and then just like 2 hours of like neiman marcus operations and they're like well this doesn't mean anything it's so funny when a film that is like most celebrated by filmmaker is so well i wouldn't say it is just so not clearly representing what they're about like i mean titty cut follies and wiseman and like meshes of the afternoon in my darren film that's like you know co uh like that's so i think different than some of her other films or like yeah i could go on like (laughs) 
My Man Godfrey and LaCava. There's so many directors <laughs> that are known for their worst film. Not that TV Cat Falling. But it's a it's a it's a pattern. Um Oh yeah. Yeah. But um yeah, I think that like and then another another line in that same review is um is I think exactly what you were saying, Sean. He just says Nina Marcus looks attractive and that somehow I think that's the color and that's the whatever and that makes it not um it's so interesting. I mean, is it easier for us in history to see, you know, all of these like performances and personalities and these tensions and um you know and capitalism at work and all of these things is it easier from this point in history um i i can't imagine though i can't i can't imagine i think that if the three of us saw this film (laughs) and it came out i hope that we would find it the same things in it the 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 counterpoint to that would be that there there were some reviewers who just kind of like got it for sure, yeah. contemporaneously. Tell yeah. me some. Uh, there's one um, in the New Republic by Mary Lou Weissman, um, and she uh, kind of uh, what? Is she, oh, she talks about like how he's like taking inventory and like scrutinizing another corner of the world, um, and which I think is a good approach, like a a, a mature approach to Weissman rather than being like rather than the other way around uh from uh who we just talked about like looking for where he's gonna like take the piss out of neiman marcus you know just kind of like he's scrutinizing this world and um he has uh, a pov about it um but he's you know i mean there are criticisms obviously but um she understood that like the image was always on sale at neiman marcus and that that's what the film was about was like uh, selling an image um, and how the store sells its image back to itself. That's exactly right. I think that's different than curation. And that's the sort of like expensiveness. It's like this like image that could be very hollow. And, um, oh, that's good. good yeah, for I, mean, her. I feel like, like what you were expressing, Miriam, about like some people just saying it's uncritical, like I maybe again it's a looking back thing but it's hard for me to read that in any other way other than like telling on yourself basically right like you're not seeing you know the inherent critiques of like this whole structure here you know and um one of the reviews that really resonated for me was from um christian science monitor by hillary devries and you know she was just really on point about all the ideological and social control sort of elements that play in the film and like something we haven't really talked about yet is like uh that sean had mentioned uh earlier uh, off off the off mic is that like this kind of feels like weissman's first big like meetings film in terms of like meeting scenes even though there's not a it, it's kind of a, a middle ground between like the meeting scenes we come to know more as a signature part of his work later and sort of the speechifying that has uh, really dominated his work because there's a lot of monologues. There's a lot of like bosses or central figures just kind of talking to a room full of people sitting around a desk. Um, but the way, you know, think about like that later scene uh, where the guys like, you know, like how many occasions, or can you recall an occasion being at a social event recently? 
preferably uh, since you've taken this this newest role as as, as a, a buyer at Neiman Marcus, where the conversation at this particular uh, party or activity uh, turned to where do you work, and folks would would begin sharing. Well, you know, I'm with IBM and, and, and I'm with uh, J C Penney's and, and so on and so forth, and and then you have that occasion uh, to. Uh, Look somebody right in the eye and, and in your most humble voice say, "Well, I'm, I'm with Neiman Marcus," and, and and suddenly find literally the the focal point of, of the of the activity kind of turns uh, almost to put you on a pedestal that that you know, my God, if you're with Neiman Marcus, there's got to be something really incredibly special about you. And everyone just kind of like, yeah, I guess so, sure, you know, right? Like, but it's it's this like Kool Aid thing that like you have to drink and like one of one of the reviewers who i thought didn't get it was uh karen rosenberg in the nation uh who was saying like uh the film doesn't go deeper than a surface level and and she's citing this scene i'm talking about here as everyone around this guy is like just like kind of being a sycophant and and you know drinking the kool-aid you know wholesale without any pushback but to me it felt much more like kind of like a hostage like twilight zone um what was that one with the little kid on the farm with the spooky powers right and everyone's like you know i better fall in line and say the right thing otherwise you know i'll get turned into a jack-in-the-box or whatever what's your favorite um meeting uh scene in the film in this film yeah in the group in in this or one that sticks out to me is the is the one that is um, earlier than that scene. Uh, I think it's somewhere in the middle, uh, and it has like that VP guy, and he's like talking to a, like rows of chairs of these like saleswomen ma- mainly, and he's on this like little stage, and he starts talking about the what is the line like? Style is the perfection of a point of view. If you think about it, st- what is style? People say they're classy, they're stylish, they're chic. Style is really perfection of the point of view. Point of view is what society is saying we should look like, live like, act like, be like, what we're trying to be. Probably the master, and to get to the meat of this morning's meeting, the master of style today in this country as far as designing and creating and setting a trend and setting a fashion and interpreting what the better customer, the wealthier woman, the chic person, the well-dressed person, Probably the best person in the United States for understanding that today is James Galanos. And he alone, out of all the American designers, out of everybody that's around in America today, Jimmy Galanos is probably the perfection of the point of view in, as far as style. Um, and he talks about like how uh, people will buy wherever they're tempted. And it's just sort of like... You know, Wiseman was capturing this, being like, "This is this is it, like right here." Like he's just spelling it all out. Yeah, the opening scene about sales is good. I think my favorite meeting scene in the film. I mean, there are a couple. I love this isn't a meeting scene, but I love the interview, the job interview. But oh my god, the, yeah, we gotta talk about that. So good. I think my favorite meeting scene though is the um, where they're talking about um, shoplifting. Security. When you. That you have an item that's missing, a piece of merchandise, let us know immediately. Don't wait for two or three or four days or five days or two weeks later to let us know. 
if it is if it is missing and more than likely has been stolen either internally or externally we have to make a known loss report which reflects on the whole store's production also by letting us know immediately we might be able to recover it or find out how it disappeared from the store and we are missing two items right now uh, uh, special order from Couture on dresses, two dresses, and also a Waterford crystal chandelier that disappeared. So, and the Waterford crystal chandelier is not in a box that is marked Waterford. No. It's a, just a plain box because it came from the showroom. So if, if you look in every box you see in your department uh, to see if it was delivered to you by mistake because once it was in the basement, and then, just like that, it was not in the basement. So, please help us. Our customer, we cannot get another one. And our customer wants it before Christmas. It's a brown, just a regular shipping box, about uh, two and a half feet tall, about two and a half feet wide. It's a square box, plain. Uh, was received down in the basement, but never left the basement. We can find. And the guy that's talking about it, he's just so, like who here he's like the detective like who yeah, in this room for sure. yeah, yeah. The water crystal chandelier they're like we can only get one there's only one of them yeah well you can't yeah you can't get caught by the purse inspector if it won't fit in the purse <laughs> <laughs> exactly um it like that scene is just so like ridiculous but also i think part of the reason why i think this film resonated for me is i spent you know from 17 to 22 working retail jobs mm -hmm. and like that scene is so resonant of like i don't know of like every <laughs> retail job except it's not waterford crystal chandeliers sure, have yeah. you have you guys worked retail yeah, I was I was thinking about that. I used to work at a toy store in in uh, Chevy Chase in DC thinking about uh we had a similar situation with like a a watercolor set like a $100 watercolor set. I I've, I've only worked at a gas station. Uh, <laughs> so I mean, not only that's not the only job, <laughs> But that's the closest to retail is like uh, selling, you know, cigarettes and stuff. Yeah, but but also I got a I got to um it just so demonstrates how rich the film is that we're all coming up with different favorite meeting scenes. Cause the one I was going to say is the one with the guy who's talking about like being at some sports arena. I see in my own friend's wardrobes. One day I was out at this Texas stadium and I was in a football game at one of the boxes and I was with fr friends and one of my best friends has a box, two boxes away. And all of a sudden, I said, is Mrs. So-and-so here? And everyone said, well, I haven't seen her, you know. But, uh, and then somebody said, yes, I saw her. And, and I said, well, I wonder why she hasn't seen me or said something. And I said, well, she knows you're here, but she's something. And I could sense something. All of a sudden, I come out one point at halftime, and I see her go across the hall in a sable. And just, just a wisp of it went into the ladies' powder room. So I stalked up and down in front of the ladies' powder room, and I just went leaving. Out she never came. I mean, the, the game began again, and she still wouldn't come out. A friend of hers came out and went back in. They were trying to see fine. I thought, well, I won't embarrass anymore. I finally disappeared. Then I disappeared, but I waited very carefully for a few seconds. Then I poked my head back out, and there she went running back into her box with a sable on. In other words, she bought, she, you, know, you know, she bought something somewhere, and we're all vulnerable to that. And I can't tell you how many people go around the world, your best customers, your best friends, your best buddies, and find and buy things other than from you. Like, that, that scene was just insane to me. <laughs> this, this film is kind of, like, 
it's it really borders on horror horror film a couple of <laughs> so uh I, I think we should talk about uh one that interview scene um and uh a, a scene that you also referenced earlier that comes a little bit after it the chicken scene um Got uh, but is, but what what is it about the interview scene that that really uh, speaks to you, Miriam? Well, I mean, when you talk about being in a cult, like you know, like I think that scene um, really uh, really speaks to that, like you know, her values in the company, but um, also just like I mean, it's just a remarkable scene. She just goes off script um, for a job interview. This young woman. Um, a young black woman who wants to be a salesperson there. And she talks about like, I worked in ready to wear. I worked in juniors. I worked in misses, men's. I worked in toys, wigs. Oh I uh, worked in children's. I worked in books. And I liked it because I got a chance to learn about all sorts of merchandise and the different customers that come to buy that particular merchandise. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you're particularly proud of? that you haven't had an opportunity to talk about? Um, the thing that's coming to mind right now that I'm particularly proud of is uh, that, the company. You don't know how much I respect and appreciate this company and the reason why I am here with this company. It's remarkable because, you know, this is for a retail job, but it really is her dream job. And she really has, she talks about paying her dues and you know, and, and you're just like, girl, for what? <laughs> Why? <laughs> but like, I understand it too. Like it really, like you, I think that's the first time in the film where the, the you know, the status where I feel like I understood the status because I understood her striving to be there. And like, I understood the steps it took to, um, to get there. If someone's trying to, to you know, uh, work their way up um, but yeah it's it's uh, and I guess it's like because she's both I think she's it's you know you talked before about the outsider insider kind of outsider view and she's someone who um, she's someone who understands the culture but is outside the culture but wants mm. to be in the culture so doesn't sound like a zombie and or like doesn't sound like she's in a cult like everyone else does but kind of um, really clearly to uh, defines the values of the cult and now that you know if we go back to thinking about this as a horror film you're like no don't become <laughs> yeah, away. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the scene it's so rich i guess because like i have a, I had a bit of a different read on it because she is really parroting back the ideology you know that the store imposes upon its its staff and like um, you know, the, the, talking about social control, but like, I, I'm not sure I had the sense how much she really internalized it or believe it, or if she's saying what she knows she needs to say and they want to hear in order to try and move up. Because I think, you know, she, she does appear relatively young and, and, you know, she's worked in so many different departments as you've been talking about. I think there's, there's a bit of a, 
unspoken you know like subtext to this that like probably because she's a young black woman she's been shuffled around uh much more without any advancement than than maybe a white counterpart would have been and she really needs to advocate for herself and go that extra mile in her interview in order to even you know get this guy to consider her and i mean when when weissman cuts back to him I, I didn't really get the sense that she had a, a shot at the position, you know, judging by his reaction, you know? It's no, like, definitely not. The right? more that she, like, asked for it, the more it wasn't... I mean, she went off script, so she's not going to get it, you know? Like, she was too... Right. Um, earnest. Like, okay, we're done here. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the staff did seem... You're probably right for certain positions. The staff did seem fairly diverse but you're right it, it was also in a kind of upstairs downstairs way i think that from reading about marcus that was like another one of his like you know like mm. very progressive things as he like i think earlier than a lot of other stores um like demanded that um that uh that that businesses they dealt with had like minority staff and like so i think he was like i think this was fairly progressive for for um compared to other other uh, mm. uh stores but yeah i mean it 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 is as you say arlen it is rich what's your take <laughs> on it john well um i don't know like i think the horror part of it is like oh we've all been there where we're in a an interview and we know we're supposed to say to them what they want to hear and that is a horrible feeling. And I think that there's a tension of like, um, like you guys are discussing, like a sort of like unknown tension of like how much she is embodying the ideology um, to get the job, how much she believes in it. And um, uh, in Benson and Anderson's book, they talk about like how often uh, a Wiseman scene won't end where you think it's going to end. And they use this as an example of like how she suddenly does this thing after you think it's over already and it like changes your understanding of of like what the scene means and the you know the motives of the people involved um but i don't i don't know that i necessarily came down with a with a um like understanding of the scene as much as just like watching this woman say these things to him and really want it and have to act this way in order to like try and get this advancement is just like really uncomfortable yeah i don't know um but like like you guys said like there's there's a richness to it because there are like there are like class and race and gender differences all happening in here that um just make it something worth talking about and uh so often i think i've been thinking about as i've been watching wiseman films that way of like I think he's interested as much in the dynamics of what's going on in the scene as much as what is what is being talked about. Like um, probably the best example is uh, the scene of the, the young gay black man in, in hospital who's sitting in front of the Life magazine on the wall um, talking to an unseen uh, hospital uh, staff member. And there is just this image of this uh, this guy and also the dynamics at play here that make it as memorable as like what they're talking about. Right. So like, I think Wiseman is just like, that's part of 
the richness of watching Wiseman's films is just like viewing these dynamics and just thinking about them, thinking about what goes on between two people um, who share different um, makeup. Uh, I think too, like there's this thing uh, expressed in this interview scene uh, that's not really directly addressed, you know, per Weissman's usual, but like, like the people on the floor cannot afford to buy the things they're selling, obviously, right? Like there's this, like, but yet they, they live in this environment of like extreme wealth where all these like big figures are being thrown around like it's nothing. And like, how could you not like, uh, kind of internalize this need for like, class advancement you know like making Mm -hmm. more money like like you you're living that all the time and like you know i think it's also impossible to divorce this film from from the time and like you know we're uh everyone we're seeing shopping has been just directly benefited by reagan's you know tax cuts uh like uh, unparalleled spending power uh that the people on the floor assuredly did not receive you know so like like there's there's this uh uh buying kind of frenzy and on top of it it's it's the holiday season right so like it's just these like monster you know fifty thousand dollar bangles or like you know the tea set or whatever like just being uh bandied about i mean in in 1983 money too or 82 right like like you know Mm -hmm. who knows how much that stuff would cost now that's really interesting um because like it that reminds me like my mom worked in um in a department store not like quite as nice as neiman marcus but like a similar type of vibe um like an anchor store in a mall and um uh as like part-time and they got like such a big uh you know a you know, substantial like, um, discount for working there. And she would like buy so much stuff from the store because she was just there around it all the time. And like the allure of it, like she was being sold to all the time. And then like the incentive of getting this discount, it's interesting. I didn't really think about that in terms of like how you're saying with the, with the workers here who are just like also around these images or these products that are like, uh, being sold to them as well, just by proxy. It's so, there's like these whole like genres of um, like department store movies um, and also like mall movies that are so interesting to watch now that, you know, in our like post-capitalism while these malls are totally empty and department stores, I don't know what happens to department stores anymore. Maybe people still go to them, but it it's just, yeah, it has this other resonance um of uh, um i think that um have you guys seen bachelor mother no it's a movie with uh, ginger rogers and david niven it's another like christmas um department store movie it'd make a nice pairing with this one and then like you and me is like a have you seen you and me um Mm -mm. Uh, Fitz Lang it's um it's really great um uh it's another department store movie um but it's about two former convicts um two former um prisoners who are working at a department store and fall in love um but there's this whole scene that is like one of the best scenes in all of cinema because so much (laughs) of cinema is like so much of like you know narrative cinema is about like you know is like 
like plots disappear without capitalism. And this too, it's about, you know, former criminal who wants to go back to his old ways and his girlfriend just like takes out a chalkboard and starts like punch, just like writes numbers. And she's like, crime doesn't pay, play. Crime doesn't pay, like literally let's add up the numbers. Like I'm going to show you like, this is like, and it's such a perfect movie and it's so perfect for, for all of these films like it's so just like breaks down really what these films um Interesting. are yeah. about yeah one of the uh references that we came across was uh barry keith grant who writes about uh horror um talked about how like the people on the escalators like this like um passivity of the customer um reminded him of like dawn of the dead zombies in the mall and and also uh I think in that same passage, he mentioned Standish Lauder's uh, experimental short Necrology, which I hadn't heard of before, but I watched it and like I loved that. That was so funny and it's uh, very dark and acerbic as well, but like it's just a, a static shot of uh, people going down the escalators at the Pan Am building, uh, but in reverse. And then a bit of a, a bit of a cheeky uh, uh, filmic gag at the end with the with the closing credits. But definitely recommend anyone checking that out on YouTube. Oh, got to see that! And um, you and me, the Fritz Lang movie I mentioned, also has a very classic uh, escalator shot. It's oh, like nice. a love yeah, shot of cool. the, like these two hands meeting on the escalator, <laughs> one on the up and one on the down. But um, uh, yeah. What I guess, like, just on the subject, what what did you guys make of the ubiquity of these escalator and elevator interstitials that are just like peppered throughout the film? And I think, you know, they're almost always accompanied by this this dinging, this kind of persistent like like kind of thing that maybe is like an elevator reaching its floor, but it could also kind of be like a cash register ringing up sales or yeah. something, but it, it's, it's just, it's too prevalent, I guess, and not, not to address. Well, I think was it Sean who mentioned it compared to the color, like the black and white, it makes sure. like the color pop um, there. I'm sure you could have other readings for it. And it probably also is related to these like past films. You know, I think that, you know, I'm sure Wiseman is aware of these films. I just mentioned these department mm-hmm. store films and it comes back. Um, but I do think it's like a color thing too. He didn't want too much color. Um, did you want to say something else about the escalator, Sean? Cause I could, I could oh, no, talk go a on. lot. Of, well, I could talk a lot about the dings. Oh, please. I, I, <laughs> I would love to. Well, I just love this, the soundtrack to this because we have the dings of like the elevator or it's a cash register, or maybe it's like, someone reaching a sales goal who knows what it is but you have these dings and then you also have these like christmas carols Mm -hmm. and that to me is like what makes it like such a perfect um christmas film is Mm -hmm. that score of like the the sort of like the the capitalism dings with the christmas carols like Mm -hmm. they work so well together into this like weird kind of eerie score it's really interesting. Yeah, they're they're the carols and also like with those dings, I feel like they're also these this more just kind of like background like ethereal music kind of thing. Uh-huh. That like like it's not any distinct song but just kind of like the audio like 
Derridus of like being in this kind of place, you know, that you're always going to be like bombarded with while you're there. But I think there's something also, Miriam, about the carols, right? That's like, there's something off about him, right? The first one we hear is like this random dude just like belting out. in the middle of the floor it didn't seem like he worked there (laughs) um and we get like a group of carolers who at first davy's shooting like in a medium shot and then we we cut uh to a wider shot and there's like nobody around them right they're just like singing to nobody basically so like even even within this like you know christmas tradition there's something that's i guess maybe perverted by this like commercial context absolutely i mean i honestly think most of the music was christmas music too or maybe it Mm. just sounded like that i think i didn't notice a lot of music that wasn't like weird music versions of christmas songs um Mm. but yeah i think it's like a just like a really glorious score um so i i want to i want to make sure i i uh hear your thoughts on the chicken song gram oh we got yeah (laughs) well i mean if you're talking about wiseman being like trying to convince people that wiseman is like it makes comedies i mean Uh deniable with that with that scene it's so funny but it's also like you know in absolute you know stark contrast to all of these sort of like you know, these sort of like snooty sales ladies and like all mm. of this idea. And then you have the upstairs, downstairs, or I really do think of it as more like backstage on stage, mm-hmm. like, yeah. you know, and they're totally backstage and they're, it's also again, like totally um, so real for like, you know, like retail or just work culture, like the mm-hmm. whole, like celebrating the birthday, the birthday cake. And so there's this woman who's having a birthday and, um, this um man dressed in a in a really like <laughs> really tore up chicken outfit <laughs> <laughs> lady you're missing something i am what am i missing a hat the well-dressed lady is always supposed to wear a hat so you put this little booger on oh my god that is doesn't that look pretty (laughs) now you want me to do my thing and to show her how pretty she looks in her hat everybody put your right hand up in the air now put your left hand up in the air and when i count to three i want you to bring your hands together one two three 
Oh, Margaret, you've just been given the clap. And like a life-size chicken outfit who wishes her happy birthday and then proceeds to like strip um, <laughs> into like these pink. And I think we just had a whole thing about like imported underwear. And then we see yeah, yeah, like yeah. stripped down to these like like pink panties and it's just like it's a just like their re their interaction and just i mean it's just it's it's a great scene yeah yeah the first the first time i watched the store like you're just kind of like caught off guard with um with that like you're just and then you're just sort of like taken in with it right like it, it's just like uh such a bizarre like absurd spectacle and it's so funny and this time around, I was I was talking to Arlen about this. Um, I, uh, I I was like knowing that it was coming. I was taken more like by how it follows up this like interview scene that we just talked about, and then this discussion of like this meeting between employees about like, well, when you work at Neiman Marcus, you know, like people think better of you. And then you get like this chicken dancing scene, and like <laughs> it turns out to be like. Uh, not as bizarre in some ways as what we just watched. Um, and, and so true. And uh, Benson and Anderson cited a Wiseman quote from, from a radio interview um, where he says, uh, the great subject of documentary filmmaking is normalcy. And sometimes normalcy turns out to be more bizarre than anything else. It may even be the true surrealism. That is so true and so perfect for this film and why I think I love it so much. Is it something it is so familiar, both like, backstage and on stage on every level and it is about normalcy and like how bizarre it can be and how yeah i think that's a perfect quote yeah i mean especially like i yeah it, it it's one of the primary qualities that makes wiseman so special i think mm -hmm. as a documentary filmmaker is like which is this mode of filmmaking that is filled with directors who are like trying to capture something visceral and like naturally exciting. And meanwhile, like Wiseman is just at like Neiman Marcus in Dallas, just like filming a bunch of like company meetings and like a scene with a chicken costume. And it's like so much more interesting than like trying to capture like this real urgency. Well, it's so much of people like playing these roles in a class stratosphere and like, you know, and like, um, and I think if we go back to the interview, um, it's about, you know, that's about trying to, you know, about like meritocracy and about like being able to play different roles within that class mm. that, that um, and um, but I think all of it is just, yeah, just about how bizarre it is to be um, uh, to fit in in any culture, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to like whatever culture it's going to be bizarre. You have to play a role to fit in. And, um, and I, you know, I know that you had Robert Green on and he's a big fan of this film. And this is like that whole backstage on stage thing. You get so much oh, of that yeah. sense of like performance. And then in that scene, everyone's just being so relaxed in the chicken scene. <laughs> and they're so like you know it feels it feels like the most normal you're right it feels the most normal and yet at the same time it's like so bizarre and like so like just like uh, uh so tacky and awesome <laughs> there's also something i think touching about it. it's kind of going off what i was saying about the dynamics just within like the um interview scene is like you have this like skinny white guy and this like i don't know like 
maybe upper 50s something uh, black woman. And, like, he's engaging with her sexuality and she, like, talks about, like, how that part of her life is over. (laughs) And, like, it's touching and it's, like, also just an interesting dynamic to watch. Yeah, I think think it, you know, it's bringing up for me a lot of the references you've already pulled up, Miriam. Like, you know, it, it highlights uh Weissman's penchant for comedy and like the Marx tradition where like it's cut the scene's cut and ends on the punchline of him pulling his pants down and, and having <laughs> having the, these like ridiculous pink underwear and then you know onto the escalators um it's also like a Cronenberg style body horror thing of this like you know man with a giant chicken head um parading about the offices and there's also a level of horror and comedy in it that just it's just so uncomfortable and cringy right like like she's doing her best to kind of play along and like be a good sport about it but like it just keeps going on it's like relentless and he keeps kind of like upping the stakes you know a little bit and like it's it's confrontational too like you know people feel all kinds of different ways about the birthday but like you know in front of all your coworkers, you're it's like oh you're old and you're going senile and like you know you you can have a good laugh about it but like i think this is the longest scene in the film the longest continuous scene we have and you know seemingly you know to maybe some of these critics who were a bit perplexed by the store it's like um you know this this is nothing about this is showing me something new something i wouldn't expect but maybe it's it's unrelated to the sort of material we're we're expecting to cover um but it's it's just like i don't know it, it it's it's a very another very rich scene but i think you have to wonder like you know, this could have been cut down, obviously, and, and other scenes could have been longer. And it's like, why why was this so pivotal, I guess, for Weissman in, in terms of where it is and how long it lasts and, and just, like, this kind of brutality of it. And I think something my, my, my theory I came up with is that it's flipping the dynamic between the floor people and the customer and in a way that, like, the the woman whose birthday it is, is like, uh, I, I imagine myself when I'm shopping and being approached by like maybe a salesperson, you know, trying to pitch something. It's like, I'm just browsing. I'm cool. You know, like, like, don't, don't worry about me. Um, but like, like there's this, this uncomfortable, like onness, like she has to play along. She has to be on. She's, she can't really leave, you know, she's there to do her job. And, uh, but, but the chicken man is just like, you know, there and approaching her and confronting her. And it, it's just a weird, uncomfortable dynamic that I wonder if Weissman was, was kind of, you know, going back to mirrors, mirroring that customer staff dynamic in kind of a weird funhouse sort of way. Yeah. I mean, I think it also, as far as the placement, it's like the, it's like the penultimate scene, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, the, like I think, yeah. I mean, the, like, I think, I think then there's like the scene with um, um, Mark the Marcus uh, awards the seventy fifth anniversary, yeah. but um, yeah, I think it's it goes back to also what Sean said about like, um, like it's it. I couldn't help the scene that it made me think about 
was the scene where the other meeting scene where they're like, oh, people are so impressed when you work at Nina Marcus. Like mm-hmm. they're so, and then to me, <laughs> it, it is confrontational, but it is just, it is just funny. I mean, on some level, it's like he said, he wants the entertaining scenes and this is a completely entertaining scene. And it's, um, it's funny and it's tense and, but it's also like the real work culture there you know like yeah, it's like yeah, the, yeah. the real work culture and it's like so absolutely it makes everything else feel like very contrived and false <laughs> and, you know like this is the real work culture yeah yeah he in in an interview he said that that was a key scene but wouldn't say why <laughs> yeah i mean it's the kind of thing i guess you just you think about them filming it and it's just like you know one of those things like we were talking about in the interview that are like gold you know you just know it when you're captured like I, this is going to be in the movie you know yeah yeah um well why, what, why is he so dirty <laughs> and i don't mean that like yeah i don't mean his trip tease i just mean like literally his costume is so dirty <laughs> yeah no he definitely seems like he should be like holding a sign in front of a kfc or something you know like like yeah. but uh well well loved uh i don't know if that's the right word but yeah what kind of friend gets you a chicken striptease like that's what i mean it's real work culture are those her yeah. real friends they're just her work totally. friends totally totally, totally humiliating her and that's the prestige that everyone goes wow you work at New <laughs> i get yeah i mean that kind of puts it perfectly yeah. right the juxtaposition yeah. is like oh this like hoity-toity <laughs> air of like you know yuppie excellence uh but no, you know, like raunchy chicken <laughs> striptease, like. Yeah. Um, well, uh, Miriam, are there are there things that uh, we didn't touch on with the film that you wanted to talk about? Um, no, I don't think so. I, I, the only other thing is like somehow when we're thinking about like raunchy and um, and just like well, just thinking about um thinking about like dallas which i don't really know at all like and it's it is capturing i think dallas culture in some ways but i love when they talk about like that sable coat as like i think sable is a great texas coat because of the weight number one because of the luxury factor number two yeah and i guess this like I, i i would be very curious what this film is like for someone from texas mm. especially from dallas and if it captures mm. things about that culture that we may have missed but um <laughs> yeah this was a pleasure to watch again and to talk about with you guys thanks so much thanks. for having me thanks Thank so much you. for talking to us yeah it's a we blast it. there's a dinner plate which is 18 dollars. there's a salad plate 12 a bread and butter is uh eight dollars cup and saucer you know the bread and butter you could do without you know i just use this in the morning uh-huh so all a salad I, plate i don't really need a salad plate okay i was gonna say a salad plate you could use for your breakfast unless you you know fill a plate with i need um dinner plate okay and cereal bowl okay there is a cereal bowl good Is it a big cereal bowl? The shape, I'm not sure. Let me see if we've got one, and if we don't, I'm sure I'll have a picture of it. It'd be like a like a coupe. 
cereal bowl. I think bowl. the cereal bowl is better.